Welcome to What's Left, the weekly political discussion challenging the mainstream left. I'm Eduardo Barco with co-host, teacher and socialist Andy Lipson, uh, right-wing teacher Jessica, and uh, community organizing socialist Kenny Cepeda. We are online at what-s-left.webmail.com. Uh, you can find that link in our episode notes. Uh, you can also subscribe, rate, review, turn on your notifications, and share your favorite episodes wherever you found this episode. Thank you. Well, uh, joining us today uh, for today's episode uh, is uh, our frequent guest and very cherished and beloved, Alison McDowell. <laughs> Glad to be back. <laughs> a mother, an independent researcher in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. She blogs at the, inter um, at the intersection of race, finance, and technology at Renton the Gears. I uh, will uh, uh, post that link in our episode notes. Um, Alison covers a range of issues related to digital empire building. Uh, so, um, We'll have her information in the episode notes and in our blog as well. All right. Um, so today's topic will be about, as Alison corrected me earlier, <laughs> the predatory uh, conditional caste transfers and cybernetic futures that are supposedly, I quote that, supposedly there to help uh, financially and the rest of communities. But I'll uh, have Alison and just expand on that topic for today as she will share with us uh, many of her slides and I, I hope that our audience will get a chance to look at the visual uh, ep episode of this um, uh, take uh, so they can follow along as we, uh, as we have Alison share with us what she has uh, researched. Alison? Welcome, by the way. Thank you so much for being well, welcome here. Welcome back. It's so good to see you again. Well, initially, I, I sent the link because I was working, you know, in December, I was doing all this deep dive research into Brazil um, and human capital finance in Brazil. And it was linked to this um, Bolsa Familia, which was a cash stipend for low income families and that they were using that as part of their um, early childhood human capital bond program. And then Early on, then I realized like, oh, wait, actually, the earlier program started in Mexico in the mid 90s. And so and then in January, I sort of did a deep dive into, you know, it's like country by country, human capital finance. Right. And it's but it's, it's deeply embedded in Latin America. And so I did an article that came out. I think in mid-January, and I sent it to you guys because, again, like you, you also have connections, you know, both to the Bay Area, the techno part, and then Latin America and how and what the deployment was. So um, it's been a couple months in between, and literally my brain has gotten full of a lot of different kinds of content, like ranging around theoretical physics and brains and paranormal activity and all sorts of other things. So it's not quite as crisp as it was in January, but I, I did a good refresher and I'm hoping that you would have some, some thoughts on this stuff as well. So I have a, a bunch of slides that incorporate both information from the article I wrote in January on conditional cash transfers in Mexico and the origin of that program in the 90s and the, the geopolitics of that. And then I'm bringing it somewhat, if we get to all of it or how much, maybe we can come back if we have to break um, to the UBI um, program that's in Oakland and how like we've seen this coming for a while, right? Like the, the UBI and I keep saying, oh, oh, it's gonna be on blockchain. It's gonna be programmable. It's not what you think. So like how to navigate that with um, like left-leaning groups, you know, around what it means to have this money floating around, but for a, a larger purpose, which is the data collection. So, um, I have a, oh, go ahead, Kenny. Yeah. I have a couple of questions already. Oh, okay. You know, can we maybe like sort of loosely define conditional cash transfer? 
And then yeah. UBI stands for. Um, right. Universal yeah. basic income. Yes. And I don't know, maybe we could throw up the first slide because it's a tweet that I did today that I think is helpful framing conversation. All right. Let me do the share screen then. I want to add programmable money to our list of terms. A list of things. <laughs> can all y'all see this at? Yes, yes, I can. So just to the next one. So conditional oh. cash transfers, programmable behavior, and universal basic income, UBI. That's sort of the title. And so this was um, this is a tweet that I had this morning because I alternate between dark material, um, lighthearted, fair every once in a while sprinkled in, and then some like frustrated cries for why are people not still not getting it? <laughs> and this was one of my, why are people still not getting it? But um, I think, and I would like to sort of open up with this and then see what you guys have to say about it. Um, literally for the past year, maybe year and a half, people have been talking about the central bank digital currency. And increasingly they've been pairing it with the climate uh, parameters and environmental social governance um, and linking this idea of a, a digital currency that ha can have restrictions put on it to one's carbon allowance. And so mo that in the general, even the alt media space where this conversation is happening, it's generally happening, it's being framed as sort of from a positionality of middle professional class people, maybe who are in, have some side crypto investments, tend to be a little bit more libertarian and sort of the framing is all about intrusions on one's free liberty to do whatever you want with your money, which in and of itself isn't, there's legitimacy to that, but it's a certain frame and it doesn't go deeper than that. People don't wonder where did this come from, this idea of these digital payment systems with limitations? And what I would say, and as we work through the slides later today, is that it's very much enmeshed in um, globalization and sort of financial imperialism, World Bank, IMF, and the dispossession of large sections, large communities in you know, the developing world, Global South, however you want to frame it, where they're looking to manage those people who have been displaced by globalization are sort of controlled by that into social service support networks that require certain behavior. And that's what this conditional cash transfer is going to be. It's that we will impoverish you and dispossess you from your direct access to your land and resources. But then in exchange, we will give you some scraps of money, but you'll have to jump through a lot of hoops to get that. And so that's what we're going to talk about in Mexico. But even so, like I have friends who um, have navigated um, public assistance. Like I have a, I have a friend who has, is on long-term disability and it's difficult. Like they, it is a very difficult process to navigate. Like you can have your whole job is just be to like navigate that process. It's not easy. And, um, and they were the ones who initially showed me about the, they call them the Obama phones, like the the phones they give to low-income people, which are sort of your minding device. And that increasingly this programmable digital money is going to be on that device. And so in the conversations that are had have have being had even in the alt media space, even among people whose frame is finance, is it's from a pretty privileged position. They're in, I don't really see any other people going back into the impact space and saying, what does this look like in terms of programmed public assistance? And then how does that relate to not just public assistance under the the 
idea of people who are financially precarious, but even people who whose children are accessing public education, right? Like that's a public benefit. And, and that, what does that part look like, right? What does it look like to look at how the global South has been managed by the IMF and the World Bank, how these conditional cash transfers happened? They're in like 70 different countries as of 2014, who knows how many. This is not something that's unknown. This is something that is widely, widely distributed. And I think large sections of the populations in certain countries are on these conditional cash transfer programs. Why is that linkage not being made? And I think for me, it feels like the bridge out of the limited health freedom space is to start talking about the bigger picture. Like, I know it sounds crazy, but they do want to put us in a global panopticon like global brain program, right? All of us, like no matter, like it's the billionaires and AI versus everyone. And if those of us on a left-leaning progressive side could start reaching into those spaces and say like, no, it's not just about like selfish libertarian, like tech bros who want to dabble in their crypto. Really this programmable money has really, really strong control mechanisms for poor people. And is that how you treat people? like who are low income, is that what socialism is? Is that what, you know, a, a progressivism is? And I don't think most people would say it is unless you're like that, whatever, automated luxury communism craziness. Um, so I think if we could skirt the issue back into looking at vulnerable communities, we would have a better inroad into the, what they keep labeling the woke culture beyond the health space. Like that could be our opportunity to say like, this is what it actually looks like. Are we doing this? And that we, we could build bridges. And, and to me, it feels very intentional that people who are prominent that I have spoken to directly in this space and laid out what is happening, never incorporate it into their analysis. So I don't know, like, do you guys have any thoughts on that central bank digital currency? I think we talked about question about universal basic income is a certain small amount of money that's given to people. At this point, they say it's given with no strings attached. It's usually like $1,000 a month, maybe $500 a month, just to be a little extra to give you like a padding. But it's it's always that, you know, they give you the free stuff first to get you hooked. You know, it's never going to be that indefinitely. So that's my feeling about the universal basic income, which actually the um, the structure for that was initially advanced by Milton Friedman you know, of all things. So it's it's not a progressive program, really, unless it's eugenics-based social progressivism. Yeah, and I suspect, Allison, that your question you're asking, I suspect each one of us here is, is taking, like, different aspects of that question, because there's a lot of things you're asking. But I'll just tell you what comes up for me um, in it. Because I agree with you that essentially the folks who are saying, don't tread on me, you know, that kind of group, is being tread on by these sorts of things, by digital currency and by the and carbon control, and they and they're like, now I'm being treaded on, and I don't want it. And in a sense, that group is, I would say, politically, has not been cued to to, to think of the global south or the people who are are under understand or like in the in poverty in this country as necessarily people that are their allies or they have to worry worry about. Like yeah. they're they have a different fate. Like my fate is control is controlled, but like I can control my fate. But those folks have chosen another path. They're, it's you know, and and if they've landed themselves in hard times, that's not on me, kind of thing. That's some of the things I sometimes hear. They're just not politically set up to look at it. But I also think one of the things I'm thinking about is like 
the sugar tax. They have, they have gotten a whole set of us to say, you know, we're going to tax those cigarettes. We're going to tax the, that sugar. We're going to, and, and everyone, but it's for, it's for the good of the people who shouldn't be drinking. They don't have, they shouldn't be using their money on that. So they've gotten a whole set of us, including liberals to buy into the idea that the state should be using these broader controls, the tax system, a, a sales tax to try to like influence how people operate. So the left has already gone down that road to some extent. And I do feel like, uh, and 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 we're thinking, oh, we're helping, we're helping them by let by doing that cigarette tax or that sugar tax or whatever sort of sort of tax. Um, but in reality, it 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 is an attack on them, but it's also an attack on us. And I think that I personally feel like they've done a good job of getting doing the whole divide and conquer thing again, getting people who are all going to be screwed up by this to to see that they they have a different angle. Like I'm just going to defend my, I'm just trying to defend my turf, you know. Um, and, uh, but I really do think one of the things we did, Christian Parenti's article last week. And one of the things, one of the, for me, one of the tragedies of the left getting all of literally caring, not caring an iota about all this digital stuff or digital currency or carbon allowances as it's related to the way you're discussing it, as opposed to, oh, it's not going to, that's not going to save the environment carbon capping, as opposed to carbon allowance is being used as a mechanism of control of all workers by the state and by the corporations. Um, it basically leaves, leaves people who have historically at least understood something about colonialism and imperialism. They're just out. And this thing is imperial and col colonial in its, in the nature of the project here. And the, the thing is, is that the don't tread on me people are suddenly realizing this is what it feels like to, to have your, yourself become colonized. And, right. and to feel the empire coming in on you. But, but this is what a lot of people have been feeling for a long time. And it's not a question of saying, well, we, we were getting screwed over earlier, so screw you. It's like, we all are now in this. And unless right. we realize it, we're, we're all, we, they are going to continue to divide and conquer us. So that's yeah. my first thoughts. Um, for me, so at the beginning of the pandemic, I was involved with this community um, organizing group. Uh, and we were feeding families and we were able to get some cash, you know, and it's just a lot of liberal, progressive, leftist, right? Um, and I remember that we obviously were collecting crumbs and trying to deliver them as efficiently as possible. And so we found ourselves, I was running that program, found ourselves um, coming to through uh, designing bureaucratic processes to deliver these crumbs justly, right, and fairly as possible. And towards the end, you know, in, in the process, I realized there is no fucking way <laughs> to deliver crumbs because, you know, this is what, this is charity, right? I, you know, I think we'll get into that at some point. Um, in, in the conversations that we had as a group, as an organization, um, a lot of, um, I actually heard some things that I was used to hearing the right wing talk about dependency, you know, people will become dependent on this, you know, how do we eliminate that? And, and, and then um, fo fast forward to now, right? And, and I abandoned that, that trying to distribute this fairly. I was like, whoever gets it, gets it. You know, I'm not gonna try to discern who deserves it more, who deserves it less. I don't know people's circumstances. Uh, there's a variety of reasons. At the end of the day, uh, there's also lack of understanding that there is the system, the capitalist system itself, you know, um, 
just creates this situation and, and, and we and people who become reformists right in this way uh, through the nonprofit systems um, just become um, gatekeepers of crumbs. That's, that's, these are the terms wow. that I use. Um, and, and, and so, and then, um, you know, there's people who become more um, powerful in that scheme of things, you know, who have more decision-making locally. You know, there are people who are nasty individuals who are uh, controlling, um, and they're very attached to the political class of this city too. Uh, and so they're connected in, in that way. And, and, and I guess it's, it's what my, the point I'm trying to make here is that in my experience, you know, there is no way to redistribute crumbs fairly to anybody. You know, it, it, the whole damn system has to be taken down, you know, but like, like Lipson said, the left has, is committed to this idea that technology can be used and repurposed for, for the good. I, I have friends who are yeah. literally in ed tech right now. You know, thinking that they can, you know, in, in like nonprofits that are pushing ed tech uh, to uh, bring marginalized communities up, you know, it, without understanding the full picture, because there is very little understanding, in my view, of capitalism, how the system pins us against each other. And, and, and uh, it also, there are structures of honestly dishonest people in the nonprofit system that, uh, that uh, you know, obviously they're, they're defending their turf, I guess. You know, in, the, in their way of, of seeing things, there's no debate. Everyone's committed to this reformist worldview that we can just make capitalism better. You know, and, and if we just like uh, had better policies, you know, that was the whole uh, Michael Parenti article in, in argument that we just have to have better policies in a way. You know, th that is a reformist worldview that doesn't fully understand. And, and so we get into this, you know, and you were asking the question, Alison, why aren't people talking about this? Right. You know, and, well, it's fascinating because I, I mean, when what you've just said, like it was impossible and then you were initially trying and then you just decided to just, you know, do, you know, what they would do is they would create those banks of Amazon lockers, right? And they would put stuff in there and they would have some AI run the codes, and whoever got the code could go unlock the locker. And then there wouldn't be no people. And that's like the friends who say, oh, if we just had a better system, then it wouldn't be corrupt because the AI gets to decide who gets, wins the lottery to open the locker for the day and get some toothpaste. I mean, that's, that's I think the logic of the solution of the Bay Area is the techno fairness. This industrial, anyway, that's like when you're saying that and you're like, I can't, you can't make it go far enough. You can't, it's never going to be right. And they would just say, oh, well, we have an equation for that. We have an equation for managed scarcity. So anyway, I don't mean to, you have other thoughts. Yeah, Kenny, when you mentioned ed tech, um, yeah, I'd, like I literally was in a faculty meeting just this week and we were supposed to be brainstorming ways to spend money very small amounts of money but um you know it's the english department but uh to purpose it toward like anti-racist equitable usage and most of the conversation revolved like around technology um so i think yeah that that um the whole ed tech area is definitely a very salient example um yeah. So um, 
just just to start off, this was the cover of my article, and I'll you know it'll be linked in the slides if people would like to read it. Um, I do think that control of both the education space and food access is huge, and I think both of those are about sort of it is sort of like terraforming the mind and body for this human plus world that they're building. And you know, I've talked about that in the past, the Japan Moonshot project that they imagine through frequency and radar and, you know, the metaverse that we're going to exist as some holographic representation of ourselves. And so I think that there are specific things that are being done to people's bodies to prepare for like nanoelectronics. And then I think that there are elements of the way people's minds work and limiting both your mobility of your physical body and preparing like your consciousness to accept this, that is coming. And, um, you know, we'll talk about it a little bit later, but the, the image that I, I picked for this, I do think that because Mexico was the center of the green revolution, the first green revolution, to me, it feels like there is a, there's a, a dispossession of like the sacred aspect of corn culture in all of this that's woven in. And, and I would be interested, Eduardo, like if you have some thoughts about that, but I think that the, the takeover by the Rockefeller Foundation through the Green Revolution that was centered in Mexico in the forties and then expanded. And then later with, I believe Ford and they worked, went into India, um, that that is very intentional. It's about, you know, using genetic modification and, and changes to the, the food systems and then separating people from the land and their food. Um, so that's the article. And then um, I have a slide and I would encourage people to maybe click through the link on this. I'll have a number of different images from this document. It's a World Bank document from 2014 on specifically uh, an analysis of con conditional cash transfers. And so this, they're talking about unconditional cash transfers versus conditional. And so unconditional is sort of where we're at now, where they're talking about doing these pilot programs like, oh, we'll just give you 500 bucks a month, just sign up, it's, it's no big deal. Um, but as so many of these programs are, is that they introduce them on certain terms and we'll see a slide about that later. And then they add more and more conditions and more and more strings attached. And so they, they could talk about it in a very outright way that, um, the conditional cash transfer makes it appealing for conservatives. It's, it's threading the needle, right? You sort of say, oh, well, we're taking care of the liberal concerns that people in need have access, but then we can put requirements on them. And so that makes it seem fiscally responsible. So it's sort of a classic third way um, you know, approach. I don't know if you guys have any thoughts on what I just said. We can go forward. I'm just um just curious Alison, if if we're if you're discussing this part of regarding the corn culture i mean is do you do you have any just thoughts on um uh genetically modified corn well so i mean my understanding is that in mexico like you you can't grow genetically modified corn although i think they're still importing gmo corn for feed so it gets yeah. in, it just, you're not supposed to grow it, right? And so um, what I'm seeing is, because I was actually trying to pull an image and I, I have an image earlier today, but what I'm seeing now is that like heirloom corn looks like it's being set up as impact market. So it seems like what they do is they marginalize cultural practice to a certain point, 
And then they start pulling it back in and uplifting it, but within certain set requirements, right? And so you you downgrade something for for decades, and then when it's almost in the you know ground into the dirt, you you pick it back up and you say, oh look, now we're gonna you know make it nice again. And then you but you do that within the terms of the conditional system. And so um, you know I can see you know there's an aspect of cultural preservation. Um, that's baked into these environmental social governance markets, because if you understand it within this, what seems like really strange, but this broad concept concept of getting data on everything to craft this really granular global brain, even things that are sacred, if you can find out a, a way to represent them digitally are important. And so they get brought back into the system, but in a way that is visible to the machine. Not in a and and I'm sure that most of the people operating that space feel like they're doing it for the right reasons. And like I don't even know if you knew that it it wasn't for the the bigger structure was a compromise that you wouldn't still do the work because it's still important. It's just it's it's all being managed. Not all, but largely like the if or institutionally managed, maybe not on individual people. Well, the only thing that was coming up for me was just when. Because I, kn- I know, I'm very familiar with the conditional, and this is something that, I mean, Brandy had to experience because when, when during the COVID period, even though she's her own business, there was a certain set of small, small business in California that could go for unemployment, but all the different metrics you had to hit in order to be on that unemployment during that time. So I'm familiar with the conditional part, but it, it just makes me think back to the time, again, just around... COVID, all that discussion, when they were putting in a trillion dollars a day into the economy and sending in the banks, and there was no condition on that. And in fact, they they were talking about how the tiny little group that might be look overseeing it was so small that they were like a thimble in the ocean as as thing as money is just being shoved into banks and being shoved into I don't even know where it went, you know. But so, and I don't even know what the kind of numbers we're going to be talking about in terms of the amount of capital or the amount that we're, but, you know, I just, I just find it very interesting of what, what a microscope is brought on on poor people and on regular people versus, and, and that, that has to, because they can't control their own lives. And then, I mean, they can't be trusted to do anything in their own lives. Like you say here, the poor know what they need and will spend or invest it as they meet their needs. And where the, where the language for the company is like, we don't want to like interfere with entrepreneurial spirit and we we don't want to like direct them to do stuff. Um, so that's the thing that came, that came up for me as I was listening. I kind of call it the monopoly money. It's like for the game. And, and at some point, someone recently shared out the talk I did in Tucson last summer and said that it was, you know, it's getting more play now, which is helpful, but that was the smart cities, the social impact, the gamification. And so in order for the game to function, in order for them to get the data, they do actually need to infuse small amounts of money, but it has to be conditional. And that's where the, the control mechanism is. So. You mentioned some, sorry, some gamification as well happening in Mexico and Morelia. In one of your articles. Oh, that was, that was the, um, oh, I'm trying to, it was the card game, the crypto card game. I'm, it's, it's escaping me now, but, um, and I know someone was bringing that. I mean, the thing is, I don't even know how big an operation that particular one was, but the guy was, who was behind it, the venture capitalist, um, 
was out of Singapore and working with United Nations on poverty alleviation. So I do think that ultimately, and I think we talked about this when we had the, um, what was the, the gaming company that like we had that other podcast episode, I said, I think in the future, they're going to give you these little bits of money and they're going to make you invest like, you know, crazy ESG investing allowances, like micro investments, you know, penny, penny trades or something. And so you'll have bunches of poor people trapped at home doing penny trading, you know, with their, you know, UBI stuff, you know, with their little tiny scraps of money, but it's about getting the data um, more than anybody making money. Was that the stimuli from uh, Texas? No, what was the what was the big thing where the the crypto traders they got bumped off? Oh, Robinhood. Yeah, Robin, GameStop. GameStop. Yeah, yeah. I, we talked about the GameStop. It was in that show. But I was like, yeah, I can see that at some point you're going to get a UBI, and you are literally going to like your job is to learn how to trade crypto. But for the for the environment. How environment, how anti-racist and environmental can you trade your crypto? Like I it totally, you know, and with good mental health. Can you improve your mental health by gaming crypto? And you know, it's it, it seems like it should be, you know, some sort of Simpsons episode or something. But I just I wanted to comment on the monopoly money like kind of metaphor. Uh it's I think it provokes a lot of thoughts in me in the sense that, you know, it this is a game, you know, like this whole financial system is, is, it is, a, it's, it's really, at least from my perspective, just um, held together by the belief that it works because the, 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 at least me from my socialist perspective, you know, the real value that it's added to society is the ability to produce. So workers are really important. You know, the people who create things, you know, the people who show up to do something and get it done but we have this media, media, uh, media, mediatory thing, right? Money mm-hmm. that, that uh, you know, gives value for exchange. And, and we don't have control of that, you know? Mm-hmm. So the game is, and again, you know, in these conditional cash transfers, you know, I, at least from my perspective, they've existed to some degree, always, you know, yeah. like unemployment and all that. But what we're talking about here is a more insidious, more precise, more nudging because they, they, they ask, things of you you know to get crumbs again that's my in <laughs> make you like you said they make you jump through hoops and stuff and there is that element of again nudging people to behave in a certain way to participate in the game you know and, yeah. and that's why they had to give us all stimulus money right so we would shut up and continue to play in the game otherwise a lot of people would have stopped paying their their mortgage and their and yeah. their rents Right. But if they're giving you money, you can continue to participate to to a degree. Otherwise, the game is up, you know, uh, and, and that's why they had to do those massive amounts of, of stimulus, you know, uh, when the economy was shut down. And, you know, we talked in another episode uh, we discussed Fabio Vigi's uh, article on, you know, the economic reasons of why they had to bring the, the world to a, to a stop, you know, uh, because of the financial a potential financial crisis. Long story short is to me, this is a game. And the more people realize that this is a game and, you know, and really what we can control is our labor and our, our ability to produce collectively. Mm-hmm. You know, it, 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 and that's why I'm a socialist, basically, because I believe that that is the ultimate uh, source of power, the ability of us to collectively produce something. Uh, but we have to let go of these ideas that, you know, that this game is perpetual or... Um, you know, uh, incapable of being destroyed and changed 
and, and reconstructed uh, in, in some other form. But because again, the arguments that I hear everywhere is just reformist arguments, just participate, just, just make it slightly better. And essentially this is, this is what this conversation is about. I think that, that, that the dominant um, topics are, how do we make it slightly better? How do we distribute, again, crumbs to people? How do we make sure that these people are learning to behave and participate in the system so the system works better? Because again, right. here in the conditional, you know, cash transfers slide that you're showing, you know, like uh, there's educational, right? Like, uh, you know, at least in the, in the circles that I've participated on that I've hated, I call it the imperial mind. You know, people think that they have to educate like the undocumented immigrants that are coming into this country, that they have to be educated. And so basically you're telling, you know, it, for me it's an imperial mindset. You yeah. know, they're, they're the other, they need, to, they need to be brought into the fold, you know, and the, the reason is implicit there is that the reasoning, the reason that they are poor is because they're uneducated, you know, and, 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 and not because, you know, they've been, you know, uh, they're getting the, sh the shittiest end of the system. Yeah. And, and, and it brings me back to Michael, uh, uh, sorry, Michael Parenti, the dad? Chris, yeah, the dad's Michael. Yeah, yeah, Michael Parenti. So yeah, he said the you know the 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 poor countries are not underdeveloped; they're overexploited. Yes, yeah. yeah. And so uh, again, it's just that idea that I think it's not just a right wing thing to uh, have conditional things. Like it, it, it's also on the left, and the left wants to educate people, and you know, in in you know, at least in, we don't accept complexity, and and they have to be brought into the civilized world. And that means technology, that means education to be more liberal, progressive in values, I guess. Yeah, I wanted to ask, because I think for the reasons that you're explaining, Kenny, I wanted, you know, I don't necessarily share <laughs> your optimism, Allison, about um, this as like a bridge. I don't know, I mean, maybe. But I just think like a good bridge. No, no, no. I mean a bridge um, for people who oh. have been fighting like medical mandates and stuff as a bridge to people who are more left leaning, who like purport to care about people in the global south or purport to care about the exploitation of, you know, non-white people or whatever. Um, but I, I, I think you said I was just going to ask about the scale like the, like how, I think you said there's like 70 countries that are doing mm -hmm. these things as of what millions and millions and millions, 2014 million people. Um, I mean, many millions of people around the world. We so just don't talk about it. Right. So I don't know. I mean, how, how, how long until this encompasses like this type of a thing encompasses the majority of us, like even here in the global north, um, I don't know. Like, what do you foresee? Because I think it is totally invisible to a lot of people, or it's just like dismissed because we've been so conditioned to to buy into I, basically like buzzwords, like oh, it's it's resilient, it's a it's a nonprofit, or it's yay, like we're helping people in the global south, like all of them you know, the appeals that you've described, it works, like it freaking works on the left. And I like, I, I know this super well, because I'm, I'm in academia, my partner's in the 
philanthropy world, like it's, it's really hard to, to kind of break through. Tell them it's about the global brain. (laughs) I mean, if we could just get people to understand that part. Um, Well, see, I just can't live the, the time I have in a nihilist state. So I just have to say like, I'm trying to appeal to people's better nature and say, I'm trusting you that if you, I'm going to go on the fact that you do not know, you're not meant to know these things, or, you know, you're not meant to spend weeks wading into MK ultra human experimentation and psychic research and radiation and all of these things and know what this country really is. Like, you're not supposed to know that, right? Like you're, or if you do, you're supposed to go write a paper for academia in a narrow sector and not talk about any of the other stuff or how it fits together. And then, so I'm going to assume everybody has good intent and like then live up to it. And, you know, and I've, I've been trying to talk to folks in the education space who are like Utah is, is a big competency-based education, you know, like, you know, that's part of this global badging system. And, you know, these are people who are on the different end of the political spectrum. And I said, listen, like you can stew around in that bucket of critical race theory conversation, but that's where they want you to stay. And so like, let me tell you as a, you know, a predominantly poor black city, like, yes, there are very serious issues there. Also, we're a city that's predominantly run by Democratic Black politicians. So that's a complicating factor, right? Like, but it's not a non-issue. But you, if you stay there, they're going to put in the global brain. They're going to install that, right? So why don't you go there? Because if you can go up to that level of like the global panopticon and not get stuck in the identity stuff, then we have a chance to actually unify. And then once we stop the global brain, we can go back and try to reconcile things about making it right in the other stuff. But if we don't stop the AI system, like the global, like, and it literally is a one world order program. I mean, that's, they've been planning it probably since at least like throughout the cold war that this was coming under the pretense that we're all fighting, but we weren't, they were planning this. So I don't know. I guess I'm trying to appeal to people's better nature. And I would hope that like maybe on the left, if I could ever, you know, sadly, I like shared some information with people I used to organize with, you know, in the education space. And I'm like, this is what I've been up to for two years. This is really intense. Like, can we talk about this? Like no reply. So. I just wanted to add because of our previous conversations too, is that at least from my perspective too, it's not about saving other people. It's about understanding that this is coming after you, your family, your descendants, your own people, your, your close network, you know, and that our destinies are uh, ultimately connected. Yeah. And, uh, that, that and like, again, I think that the, the, the purpose of this conversation is to show that uh, this has been planning, it's been, been tested, and it's coming this way, right? Yeah. And it's going to uh, be very insidious in our lives. As we've seen, you know, the pandemic has wreaked havoc in people's economies, you know, in, in a lot of households, uh, and people are still catching up. And, you know, I think that's the argument we, you know, like made before, right? I, I listen to a degree that, you know, it, it, looking at the, the, the history of other people tells you something about our history, you know, and, and because we've talked about this, about this is imperialism, and you know, at least from my perspective, is capitalism. Imperialism is the highest stage of capitalism, and it's going to continue, and that's what it does. And if we don't understand it through those lenses, and that it involves you as an individual, uh, and, and if you think you can hide from this one, I think you're delusional. Because at least from my perspective, how we've discussed in this uh, uh, 
um, show, uh, this ends in war because this is, uh, you know, that's what capitalism does. You know, in technology, Actually, they want to have peace. They want to shoot you up with the frequency and make everybody really hypnotized and peaceful. <laughs> that's that's really is what their plan is, is like this one world religion peace thing. But I think it's a different kind of war, but it's war, but it looks different, I think. And, but and I don't know. I don't know the time frame. And, I, and that's that's where I think there's a little bit of, you know, agreement <laughs> on that part, yeah. you know, like because I, I again, I see these nation states, I think Lipson similarly, they're competing for each other and like- Oh, no, the they're point, not. And that, that's where we disagree, you know, and that- You guys have to watch my, the video I just posted from 1981, this uh, from, if you haven't, well, we'll get to it, but this ICUS, this um, International Center for Unification of Science uh, was started by Sung Young Moon, the Moonies, the CIA. And they're setting it up actually, Actually, what his frame was in 1981 was that we were going to have world peace and Asia was going to unite like white Western culture with black and brown global South. And it was going to be through Asia. And he literally, he announced the Belt and Road Initiative in that talk in 1981. They're like, oh. so, you know, like they're all in the same room, but it's, it's sort of impure. But anyway, we can. Yeah. I think yeah, it's a lot. <laughs> That would be another episode we'd have to. That would be a whole other episode. Yeah. Yes, Condi yeah. back to programmable money. I think there was maybe before we go on, like you, you had a question about what that was, and so this is going to be like blockchain smart contract money, where even like once you get a conditional cash transfer, and I think they had already started piloting this in maybe the Netherlands. Um, that like you could use X, X amount could be programmed for rent and X amount for food and X amount. Like, so you actually, you would have money, but it wasn't money you could use for anything. It was already pre-budgeted and pre-programmed digitally. And that's part of this, uh, the Ethereum smart contract stuff. Next slide. Yeah. Is it just, sorry, I don't mean <laughs> to take this elsewhere. But we don't have to add this part. But you talked about like psychic research and and the government's desire. <laughs> and I'm not trying to talk, but Alison, maybe we. I just want to say, can we revisit that another time? I'm just very curious because I just heard on the BBC the first person to communicate telepathically with the technology that is being used in their brain to communicate certain things. But you said something about psychic, psych, something well, like that. Essentially, like what I'm seeing, and this is part of, no, it actually intersects. Like, I know you guys don't <laughs> really understand how my brain works, but it really does. <laughs> like this conditional just... crap, it's embedded in history. Like you guys appreciate the history of it, right? Like, and it's a colonial history. So this is coming out of like the wedding of Victorian, early, like Edwardian era spiritualism that is like colonized. So like, let's go to these places with mist. You know, let's go to India and we'll get that stuff. That's really interesting. How can we use it for the crown? And so it's, these folks are mixed up in the Fabian society, Fabian socialism. There's overlap in that and the British psychical society. So or actually the Institute for psychical research, the Balfour family, Arthur Balfour, the, the, the UK prime minister who, who led the Balfour declaration that established the state of Israel was the president of the Institute for Psychical Research in the UK. And there is like this overlap between Fabian socialism. And so it's sort of like eugenics, imperialism, spiritualism, and um, 
like progressive social policy. It's weird that they all go together, but this is stuff is all sort of bubbling up between like the 1880s and the 1920s. And it's, it's all really relevant to today because ultimately the psychical research, I think went underground and pivoted into like the MK ultra, like the science you're not supposed to know. And that's the, the work. And maybe, you know, I can get around to it later with this world brain project, but I've been tracking everyone. And like Duke has had a parapsychology research institute starting in the, the the 20s, like for 40 years at Duke. So it's not just bogus stuff. It's just they don't want you to actually talk about it. Well, we'll discuss it further. I, I don't yeah. mean to stray away. But it is. That. It overlaps in England, these the Fabian <laughs> socialists and the spiritualists and the eugenicists. It's all connected. With all right. Tell us about this slide I use. Well, this is just sort of like to mention. So I make these, I, I got kicked out a little sis. Now I have like another map program I'm trying to use. So, you know, I'll, 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 each of these dots in here is interactive and there's a link to it. So I'd encourage people to spend some time on that. Um, it's just an overview. Essentially, you know, Mexico was used as a test bed for these programs. And even though it was done with um, Mexican leadership, most of them were educated in the United States and they were doing this on behalf of the US government and these social policy um, incubators and the, um, the Inter-American Development um, Corporation. Um, so, you know, this is just one of the reports um, you see there, uh, UC Berkeley. So the Berkeley people were, <laughs> there you go, um, the, the National Labor an economic board or whatever. Um, but, you know, Berkeley in 2001 was sort of doing an analysis of, of Progressa. So it went from like Progressa to Opportunidades, I think to Promesa or something like that. It went through several phases and Progressa was the first. And that was, I think, what they used to scale the co conditional cash transfer programs up to those 70 other countries. So we can move forward. This is yeah, just- I was very curious, sorry, just because this is, uh something that is highly in, in allotted for, um, for lifting up the poverty that, of people uh, in Mexico for, uh, they had to, but the people had, the condition was people had to go to health clinics. They had to go to school 85 days of the year. They had to go, they had to do so many things to, to, to qualify, but it has targeted so many rural communities in Mexico. So, I know there's Bolsa in Brazil, I think, as yeah. well. So uh, the people behind it, though, it just seems so how like there's always something behind people's philanthropic um, desire to want to help pe poor people. No, but there was this 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 um, today now, obviously, we have apps, but before there was all this data collection that people were doing. They're just filling out forms, making sure that they had to report, making sure that their kids had to be reported. And even before their kids were born, they were also trying to incorporate this program for people that for children that were in for pregnant women. So yes. I right. Yeah, no, it's human capital, Eduardo. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's it's not charity. <laughs> it's not it's not autonomy. It is. Social improvement. Right. But to what standard? And then. Is it is it improved? Like, why were why are so many people poor in the first place? I mean, I guess that was somewhat shocking to me. If you want to like just advance the next one, Andy, um, because I think in some ways, like NAFTA and the implosion of the Mexican economy was on purpose. 
like the level of impoverishment, I think was like 30 or 40% after this, like of the country, like very high levels of poverty. Like that is not a functional, I'm not saying it's Mexico's fault, but within the system, within a global system, that is a dysfunctional society if you have those levels of impoverished people, right? And so it wasn't the poor people's fault that all of a sudden 40 people, 40% of the country became impoverished. It was, it's systemic. And so you're fixing the people, but you're not fixing the problem that put the people into poverty. You're just managing the people. And so like, I didn't have a really good handle on, you know, it's funny, you, you hear these names and of, of course, you know, I'm, I, I should be better educated about global politics than I am. But when I started looking into Zidio, like, I mean, he, he's just your total globalist, right? I mean, he came out of Yale, you know, that's the whole skull and bone stuff. And then like went on to work with it, with the UN on, on the drug policy, on finance for the sustainable development goals. He was the chair of the Rockefeller Foundation on planetary health, um, uh, co-chair of the Inter-American Dialogue. This is all about finance. Let me see. And uh, later in his life, he he was part of the World Health um, let's see, World Health Assembly to review how, how, how international and national institutions can prepare and react to pandemic. Total, I mean, totally on board with all of that stuff. And then actually was running the Yale Center for the Study of Globalization. Well, yeah, I guess so, right? I mean, he, he was at the center of globalization. And so these people then are uplifted. Again, it's the talented, like, oh, it's the Ivy League guy. He's the global, look, at all, he's on all the committees, you know, democracy in the digital age. And so you have to question, I guess, what is the story? And, and this, I think we'll get to in the next slide, but I did pull in the Orozco, like, what story are you in? Are you telling the story that all the Mexicans want to come and go to American Ivy League institutions and live in our story of being the empire? But not, not everybody gets to live that story. So most people are going to be poor people jumping through the hoops of going to the health clinics and attending school that teaches you that you're no good, you know, and then a few people get to do that. So, yeah. I wanted to add that even before uh, there was Carlos <laughs> de Gortari, Harvard educated, you know, he was the poster child for um, globalization also. Uh, he was the one who got NAFTA started um, and he got also involved. But again, another Harvard educated president of Mexico uh, yeah. who set up, you know, NAFTA and, and, and you know, in the mass exodus of Mexican workers North when, you know, NAFTA came into place. Uh, and so Mexico has a long history of, you know, a, a US educated, Harvard educated leaders who advanced globalization and, and, you know, so I'm not surprised, you know, that they're in, it's all connected. Right. And I forgot to mention, so I think he was with the, the, the bank, Central Bank of Mexico, but also in the Department, Secretary of Education. So, you know, even when I wrote this in January, I didn't have a good handle on the fact that literally they're trying to build a new evolutionary step where we have shared consciousness or part of a global brain. And so once you have that in your mind, like this isn't a hokey thing. This is literally something that they've been very intentionally working on through economic policy, through technology policy, through physics to get that. And it's not a natural process. It's an imperial process and it's a colonizer imperial mindset that the fact that he was secretary of education, that's central. They wanna control minds and bodies to get there. 
I think the other thing I would add um, is, you know, that the, the notion that NAFTA had this um, after effect of destroying the Mexican Mexican economy, like who could have who could have who could have known? I think at this point, most people understand. Well, I believe most people understand that the people who put this policy in place did it did this very intentionally to direct the Mexican economy. But most of it was put in terms of just U.S. businesses, and mm -hmm. as if as if the U.S. didn't have a coterie of. And of course, there was also there were to be taught there would be discussion of the U.S. and the School of Americas. Like we have this whole set of people who are trained to control and operate within the militaries. So political officials, if they get off the, off the leash, mm -hmm. they can be taken out. Yeah. Without saying that the School of Americas in the United States, in, in terms of not its non-military wing, but its economic and political wing, is Yale and Harvard and Stanford and all these these places where people like Ernesto. So people wonder. Where do these people come from? How are they able to like literally allow their country to be raped in this way? And they're like, no, they're they're trained here. They've right. become wealthy here, and they're told you go there and you like this guy became president in 1994, like you're pointing out at, at NAFTA. So, to I think we've uh, those of us again on the left have had a kind of narrow view of how our imperialism is operating, and we've kind of we've we've sectioned things off in terms of School of Americas and things like that. The entire our entire educational system at home and abroad is an imperial project, um, yeah. and Ernesto's Zindisadillo is a is a is a product of that. Um, so I just feel like I, I just keep these are things I'm sort of thinking as as you go through this. So yeah, and I just wanted to add again to that notion that they knew what's going to happen in terms of the wreck that it was going to uh, you know cause in terms of people's lives in Mexico. And so again, that's when you started uh, getting tighter borders. You know, Bill Clinton mm. was the, the oh, person, right. and E Verify was launched under Bill Clinton. You know, and the Personal Re Responsibility Act was also launched under yeah. Bill Clinton. And so again, they knew that again, NAFTA wasn't just an attack on the Mexican economy; it's also also an attack on U.S. workers. Yeah. You know, and, and and this is again something that the left does not understand. You know that uh, it's not. It was an attack on every workers of, of the world, essentially. You know this global project to you know make life better, and and I, and I see this as a precursor to the World Economic Forum. You know I see the same language, the same promises of a better world, more you know humane and fair, and with opportunities for everyone. Uh, it, 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 it's just all the same to me. It's just a different stage in the process of you know. Of extraction and 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 subjugating humans, you know, in human labor. Definitely, yeah. I mean, in retrospect, as I was, I was like, they do all this on purpose. Like, literally, it's like, okay, we're using Mexico as the test bed for this. We need to, you know, trigger mass dispossession. Economic. We need to wreck the economy, and we'll make people dependent. That's what it is. And I keep, I keep going back. I'm like, it's the reservation model. It's dispossess people destabilize them, make them economically dependent on the state, and then you can control them. And then you can also hold the threat of their children against them, right? You don't stand and stay in line with what our expectations are. We'll send the social workers to come take your kids. You know, that's, that's about, that's about the size of it. So um, you want yep. to go? Okay. Um, I tweeted this today and I said, do you get it? <laughs> and, you know, I just, I feel like 
the idea of indigenous rights, I mean, because clearly, you know, that triggered and, and whether or not exactly what was going on with the, the army itself or the individual people, the movement, right, of, of this idea in my mind of as we're putting land on blockchain, right, as people's access to like collectivist communal land goes away and it was already going away then, like we should have paid attention, right? That should have been the signal because I think moving forward, the, the conquest is not simply of the indigenous people, it's continuing through to the 20th century, but actually is of all natural life. That this conquest is that, and you can't see, but behind that robot is a person operating the robot is that you put your brain in a robot, right? That that literally indigenous, and I'm not I'm not meaning to dismiss like our, our, our marginalize that unique struggle, but we are all getting to the point that we are going to be superfluous to an automated system. We are literally going to be, their goal is to have us submit to train these robot replacements. And so, you know, trying to navigate an understanding of that historical, I keep thinking, and, and again, you know, with those of you guys in California, it's the mission system, right? That what we're dealing with now of programmable money and in, in, in the, these banking systems, it is an extension of ring the bell, do the thing, or someone will beat you, right? Or someone will rape you, or someone will do these things to you or withhold food from you. Like it is that California mission system that, you know, throughout Mexico and all the way up, is what's coming. And in that struggle, I think is like, how do we not appropriate, but how do we properly reflect on that and then figure out what to do next? I mean, because to me, that's the story we should be looking at is within that lens. And that's the lens that I feel really lonely out there in the health freedom space is that you know, it's not, that isn't the lens people are, are in. It's, it's the red, white, and blue Patriot lens. That's the vast majority. And I'm like, I don't know, guys, it's more complicated than that. I just want to say real quick that, you know, like the whole disappropriation, wrecking havoc in the economy, destroying people's lives. It again, brings us back to the pandemic, you know, in, in the last two years and, you know, and how it has dispossessed so many people and put so many people in a precarious situation. So what's next? What are the solutions? You know, and that's why I'm like very curious about this topic, right? This conversation, mm. like the, the 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 havoc was wrecked. You know, like it's it's it was there. And yes, we're being data mined with all this stuff. What's what's next? You know, in terms of the state and like in terms of the the systems that you're talking about. That's kind of like what I'm paying attention to. Well, and I would just I, oh, go ahead. No, go ahead, Alison. Respond to. No, I would just say at this point, and I think we have different frames, is that where I'm at now, um, and not to be flaky, but like, if you, if the struggle is limited to the material realm, it feels very big. You know, I the, the, if you just look at it on pure, like the material elements of like, who has access to which resources, the, the, the prospects do not look good. And so, but I'm not giving up, <laughs> you know, I'm not, and I'm not running away because one, I want to defend the thing that I care about my city, my community. Like I don't want to just go remake myself in a cave somewhere. And so I feel like at that level, it becomes 
there's like a spiritual struggle. And then I think even though it seems going back to what Eduardo, we had this conversation, there is something in the immaterial that they know about. I mean, I, I can tell by researching and seeing the amount of resources that these theoretical physicists, these applied sociologists, they wouldn't have spent all of those resources if there wasn't something there. And I don't think you have to know all of those things to get there or to have access to that. But I think there is something and I, th there's like no guidebook and I, I'm not here to like sell you a crystal or a thing or a frequency or like, I don't know. I don't really know how that is, but I have to believe that there is beyond, there's the material shore. And I'm not saying a, like abandon the material only to do the other stuff, but I'm like, it ha I feel like it has to be both. Um, and if you have ideas on that, I'm open. Like, I'm still trying to figure it out because like, I think there is like, I think, and I think they're manipulating stuff in some non-material ways um, that are hard to conceptualize at this point. I think it may be in 20 years, we'll be like, oh yeah, that's when they were hitting the like frequency beam or whatever. But um, we don't know, we don't have a language for it. It's like, you know, so anyway, that's just. Yeah, so I mean, just on that last point are, you're kind of, the, your description of, it's like a sort of perversion of spirituality that you see on on the other side of those of us who are who who also see it as a as a sort of spiritual battle or I mean I think that I mean I don't know perversion I just I know that they know that there's power and influence in spaces beyond what we normally are sensing or like average people like would know how to access. I don't know. Like, I don't like to just jump into esoterics, but like when you spend time researching like the grants behind this human ecology, like program that was based out of Cornell and looking at the money that the CIA put into that, like there is, you know, and then knowing literally like communities that have their direct cultural practice in a mystical tradition. I don't know. Like, I think there is something. And, and I would say like my, my, um, you know, I had a friend recommend Michael Talbot's book on the holographic universe. I think there's stuff that they know, like, and I don't claim to know all the things, but I'm like, no, they know some stuff or they think they know some stuff. So I'm going to assume that we can use that stuff too. And maybe we can use it intuitively. Well, just to also say something, because um, I think I know what you're referring to, Allison. And I think it's something we I, I kind of mentioned before on an episode that you were on where I had seen that article about the CIA doing uh, for 10 years of study on shamanism to see if they could find out if there's ways of doing um, espionage um, by sending your spirit out. So yeah. they had been studying this stuff for 10 or 20 years, very much honoring <laughs> the, the tradition because they were saying, there's something we're going to go look at. What it convinced me of is these people won't leave a rock un uncovered in order to, in, and like, it's not a question of, oh, we're going to screw up the shamans. We're, we're like, let's learn about shamanism to see if there's some way we can use some of their techniques to send our spirit out um, and get, get information on our enemies, you know, and use it for war or whatever, but that, but say, Hey, there's a, there's something to look into. And they, the report was mixed in terms of what, 
uh, the ability of what they thought would, might be the ability to do it. It didn't say no, and it didn't say yes. At least the part that I had seen at that that was re revealed. So this is what I hear you talking about: is like um, we have to understand that this is full spectrum warfare, you know, and that it doesn't just involve the material plane. Uh, I will say when we had our when we had our discussion, or when we had the people from the Luminary Village um, visit us or give an interview, already really. Two, two, well, at least one plate time I visited them, there was a person giving a talk about ghosts and about EMF signals in your house. And it's not feng shui. It was like, I mean, it's kind of, it sounded like kind of like feng shui, but it was like, it was talking about spirits in your house in relationship to the 5G. And, but it wasn't 5G. It was like talking about how, how are the spirits affected by these electromagnetic frequencies that are that are coming in. And so I, I do think these, then this person wasn't necessarily into the world economic forum discussion. They were just, this is just their, their beat for understanding how to make your house a more livable place for you. Um, I think those things are going to be part of um, the new society that will be built. Um, and I think that those things are coming up into people's consciousness because like as Western medicine and Western education and as it literally breaks, becomes exposed as broken, um, people are going to find other ways of getting an education, of educating themselves on things that actually mean and matter. Um, and that will probably, we will probably find ourselves expanding into areas that I didn't think I was going to be learning about, like, <laughs> like ghosts. I mean, I didn't know that that was something that we needed to discuss. And I don't still don't know what to say like about heart. it. Like what these people are after, the, the global is heart um, mind synthesis. And so if you actually look at the wearable technologies that are coming on, and I know this is like so off topic, but like they've got the brainwave monitors and the cardiac, right? And a lot of the injury stuff that's coming, the fallout is neurological and cardiac, right? And so they're creating opportunities to get this data. And actually there was something, um, I had a colleague who initially was an advocate around this something called iHeartMath, which was this biofeedback thing. Like, a, I, is it like a biofeedback loop to like calm yourself or whatever and the use of it in schools, but it wasn't, it was before it was connected to the cloud. And then when it went connected to the cloud, they were like, oh no, like this is not good. But I think that there is something in the, like, I think there is something about heart energy, like there, there is an energetic and I don't know, I don't want to be too loopy about it because I don't have anything firm, but I know they're interested in it. And I feel like, sure, like build community and stuff in your material world, because I think that the energetics of the community building process are really important. And whether you're building community because you think you can somehow overpower this seemingly indomitable force. Like I would say, don't do it in spite of that. Just do it for you. Do it for the energy that you get in building that community, not in opposition. Because once it becomes like I'm doing it in fear or running away or whatever, then it's it's a different kind of energy, but just like a celebration of it, like your gifts. And I think in, in and of itself, autonomously, that would be pretty amazing. But it's like this heart energy and that if we can make an impression in the frequency if this is a holographic reality is there a ripple like how far does the ripple go and you know we don't know like we don't know what we do today or who we talk to or what conversation 
will plant the seed that like may sit there for three or five years and then come up some place and we'll never even know about it, but it may disrupt some aspect of this machine. So that's anyway, that's why I'm on material versus psychical. <laughs> As someone who doesn't really know a ton about it. So I just, for some reason, my brain went to, um, do you guys remember in our fourth industrial revolution like images and ads episode there was that um one on psilocybin right which there's like kind of an increasing movement toward like decriminalizing it and maybe eventually legalizing it you know kind of like they did with marijuana which uh, arguably has been kind of a huge disaster and now everything's laced with synthetics and whatever right um but all, you know, all the extra money, like, is totally going to help, you know, poor, disenfranchised communities, um, sure. But um, <laughs> it was just that image. I can't remember what the, like, company or whatever it was, but they they had, like, that image of the tree of life, but it was, like, a brain. Oh, um, this makes me okay. think of, like, yeah, no. yeah like, different, different planes of experience, right? And the way that, like, even just you know, I mean, that's in some sense, like a material, I mean, it's plant medicine, right? It's not, it's not that woo woo, but it's still, you know, it, people tap into different experiences of life and they know that. And yeah, yeah they want to control that. I think right, that right. they want to they program you, whatever they can use, if they think they can use it to program, I think they will. Totally. Well, I, my comment was this, this went way that way. Um, my comment was about this slide here. I just wanted to so we can move on. I think the Zapatista movement um, is a, an example of who we probably should emulate. I'm not saying they're perfect, but the revolutionary struggle for indigenous autonomy and for declaring war on Mexico and the global capitalist state. Like they are what I would consider this fight against AI, against everything that we've they're trying, people are trying to impose onto us. So I, I'm not wanting to spend too much time because I think we went elsewhere in this ethereal, ethere, 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 how do you say it? Etheric. Etheric realm. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so I guess we won't spend too much time, but, <laughs> um, but I know we won't re revisit this in another slide, no? Alison, that's why. No, that's, that, I mean, mostly I'm just trying to sort of loop it back to the historical context and say that the original people of those lands, whatever lands you're on around the world, now you are going to be made redundant by the machines. That is their intention. And so we should try to reflect and learn on those, learn the history and the lessons from that. That would be useful. Because you know the military is studying all of that, you know, like they have, they have their their binders or whatever their virtual reality scenarios to figure out. When I ended up going to, out to, you know, Carlisle is not that far from where we are. You know, the model for the indigenous boarding schools, and it's now the army. Um, I can't remember, like the war college, the army war college, like where all the head head people go to be trained and the refined, you know, and it's. That's what they put it there on the residential school. And, and I wanted to take my family there to see it and see that there are many children that died there. And um, you have to get like clearance or whatever. And we got in and we like went the gate and literally they had their like flashing billboard for the program was about Custer. So they, they don't forget this stuff. Like they don't forget. 
it's all all of like scenario for them training scenario so all right so i guess the, the next one i think is just is the just the the a little context setting but it was the rosco murals in um ospicio Campania. sorry i don't have the NA on there but the um i don't know if you guys remember these but it, it's Cortez and and I guess one of the the, the mission brothers um, with these mechanical angels sort of whispering in the ear, and so I feel like there is this domination culture that has gone back since you know the arrival you know in the in the Americas of the the conquest and that this that it that the the tech technology the technological mindset is sort of has been part of that from the beginning so. So this is the book that I've been reading about the global brain. It's Oliver Reiser. He was a professor of philosophy at Pitt for like 40 years. And he worked with Julius Stolman and Fritz Kunst on this global brain project up through the seventies. And so he's written quite a number of books. I have another book. Like the idea is sort of the synthesis of um, science and hum humanism towards a new era of evolution. So this one, I'm curious what you guys think about it. All right, so planetary humanism. They're talking about it as an alternative to Marxist socialism. We propose a more up-to-date orientation, the theater theory of planetary socialism. Okay. So they're, they're figuring that there's going to be a universal civilization to fuse many features of political, economic, and ideology. Um, there will be a planetary culture where even the religions and philosophies of the Orient will have their contributions to make. So even Asia gets included. Again, it references the world brain as a formal organ of integration in this planetary civilization. And it's gonna replace all of our and transcend atomistic social mechanisms and concepts. Um, and anyway, so I, I, you know, this is sort of where they're at and there, it, it is the one world order, but there's part of me that sort of, and looking back and I've seen that, have you guys have probably seen like the Barney Miller clip that came through where the guy like then the trench coat comes in and he's arrested and he's like no there's a one world order it's called the trilateral commission and he goes on and on and it like literally is all of the things that are actually true and real and the, and the guy isn't crazy but he sounds crazy and I keep thinking that looking back that some of this it feels like they were set up to be made to look crazy right it's like that the whole conspiracy movement feels like it was set up so that like when this finally happened, you would be like, you've been talking about that since the seventies, you guys are just conspiracy. People. Like it's a dismissive thing, but like how you talk about the fact that these very high level individuals were literally talking about a world brain <laughs> in 1946 and, and framing it within sort of a socialist construct. I mean, they're saying it's an alternative, right? But it's a, a socialism that will, and we'll see this in like a couple other clips, essentially wipe out what they call atomistic, like no more identity, like no more cultural distinction, no more, you know, economic distinction, no more ego. Everything is just oneness. So I don't know. Do you guys well, have any thoughts? I, I think I would just say that socialism, the reformist wing of socialism has a long tradition of saying, Look, if you can't beat them, join them. In a in a sense, I mean, if you go back to Karl Kautsky's hyperimperialism, the notion that maybe and and it and it's and it saw the German state as socialists came more to power and within the state as trade unions were growing, and particularly saw the German state against Russian backwardness of the czar 
Like that's that's the old world. We have we are going to bring the new world, and it's oh, a new world right. of integration of integrated economies. And it proposed a notion that maybe there would be a, a global peace that would come out of it. Didn't talk about global brain, but it did suggest the notion that there is a road to global peace through the integration of the economies and through the growth of trade unions and socialists in power and a, this not notion that these people would would deliver better things for regular people within Germany and then within the within the German colonies even um, if they if they were such any within Britain with the United States and then if Russia could be brought in and well the fact that we have to make war on Russia to then get them there well that's just a, you know we have to break a few eggs um, so this reformist socialism has always had a very dangerous part to it because it gave up the notion that regular people can run society. And I would say, because it just couldn't happen. It wasn't happening. And so, well, we're going to just have to do it from above. And the the expert. Yeah. So yeah, I don't, I think, unfortunately, Marxist socialism, if you give up the notion of revolution, it, it, it has a very, it can, it can turn into something very dark, very quick um, and be used to justify in the name of helping people because it, you're a Marxist and socialist, you want to help people, but helping people essentially submit to the international and, and the, well, the, the global capitalist system because it had given up the notion that it could challenge it. So in, in, it, I hadn't heard about it in terms of being talked about this way, the world brain, but there is a rich tradition of socialists um, being the um, flag bearers of the cap of of, of imperialism, um, and 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 World War One is a is a lesson in seeing a few socialists who like I again Kenny's mentioned or Rosa Luxemburg literally committed wanted to commit suicide when she saw the road that the socialists went in relationship to the global war that was that was coming out when she thought they were there to fight that and to say no we have to stop this at all cost. And we have to make war on our own rulers who are saying we have to go to war against other people because we have to, before we will fight other workers, we have to fight our rulers. And when she saw all her, all her fellow socialists go the other way on it, it, it wrecked her. I mean, it didn't wreck her, wreck her, but like she went into some really dark days around that. And, um, you know, later was buoyed by the fact that there were other socialists who joined her in trying to stop what Germany was doing and take down the German government. And then of course her and Carly were killed. Um, by by fellow socialists who saw her and those other the people like that as the most dangerous people. Wow. Um, so I would say that mm-hmm. this, I don't know this thing, but it looks familiar. I've heard this kind of stuff before and it comes out of the mouth. And today, as I listen to my comrade, fellow socialists, basically say lockdowns and you know what? They feel like everyone getting injected is some kind of socialism because you're doing it for free and everyone's on board and we're all doing it to protect each other. So there's a, they, they see in it socialism, but behind, if you look behind the curtain, it's control authoritarian, totalitarian. I mean, I guess that's what I would say. Just a quick like commentary. Uh, I had friends who think they're radicals calling the stimulus burning money, you know, and that's their idea oh. of socialism. And, you know, and, and so, yeah, it's scary because those same people were the ones who created a lot of anguish for me for being vocal against, you know, what happened and seeing this, right? Like the, 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 the systems of control that are coming into place into our consciousness, you know, 
uh, in, 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 in like the prospects of the future, that's why they look uh, pretty uh, dark for me because we have already been conditioned to accept and there isn't much questioning. And like you said, Alison, Alison the, the whole premise of conspirational theory is so well ingrained in the, on the left, you know, and they don't realize how, how counterproductive it is. And if you challenge and, and raise a voice to something like this, right, like the world brain or you know, this global thing that, you know, will um, come to control our lives, then you're the crazy ones, you know, and, and just just vote, you know, for better policies and very, uh, you know, leaders. And so it, it, it's, it, and, and that's why I'm going through this route to the more radical socialist, you know, I guess I call myself a revolutionary so socialist in that sense, there is no fixing this, yeah. you know, there is no reforming this. If you commit to that, it, you know, and, and there is this like um, phrase that I, I don't know where I heard it, but if you scratch a liberal long enough, you get a fascist. But I, 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 I put that also on socialism, people who proclaim socialism and Marxism. And a lot of people, because they are committed to the reformist things and, and they actually are doing imperial, the imperial work. In, yeah. in, in so it's scary that's a great line kenny i just also i'm just noticing the last line of the paragraph the matter of forming an ideal map of a territory to be it's like <laughs> super imperialist like <laughs> mapping um well this is very dark but yeah there's part of me that's like Ooh, allison don't show this to the right wing of the medical freedom movement <laughs> But like, I don't think that this is like, I wouldn't call these people social. Like, I don't think they actually were. I mean, I don't think Oliver Reiser certainly was philosophy chair of Pitt, but he's, he's framing a story, right? He's like, oh, we're going to have the peaceful story. It's all the world brain only. haha, ha. It's BlackRock's Aladdin AI hedge fund computer, you know? <laughs> so can we click to the next one, Andy? I just have a couple of these that I, I just think were useful. So this is, um, this is, this kind of speaks, I guess, to the, like the sacred, the, the material, immaterial and, it, you know, and something I've been struggling with, um, just where does religion fit into all of this? Because I feel like most of these faith institutions are fully corrupted, but then there are still people who have a strong internal compass and a faith practice and that that is really good. And then how, but at the same time, the institutions of faith are all going to be leveraged into these public private partnership impact deals. Um, so this, in, in, in this section, they're talking about that um, it says that religions that obstruct social advance must be subordinated. And I think that that's very interesting in terms of like reflecting on making indigenous religion illegal, like in the United States, that, that so many of those cultural practices, faith practices were made illegal until like the eighties. Um, in, in the culture of planetary democracy, the various authoritarian religions will be obsolete. But the religious spirit through a renaissance of awe and reverence will constitute a wholesome ingredient in the universal synthesis. Like it's like a recipe. Fragmentation in society must give way to integration. So I think that's the integration. Um, in the past, morality has frequently been a matter of latitude, longitude, and even altitude. In the future, we must build an international morality. And so when I, I read that, I sort of feel like I've, I've always imagined religion on blockchain, that there's going to be some sort of universal 
book of coded law, like in smart contracts of what morality constitutes and like what society is allowed to be. And then when they're handing out the crumbs and the AI gets to decide who gets a key to the locker to get some food or whatever, like there will be some international morality built into that. But I don't know. Do you guys have any, because again, I'm I'm sort of bringing this up. I know this is a little bit tangential to conditional cash transfer, but the religion, religious communities, and I I can foresee that, especially in Latin America, will have a central role and, and the U.S. I mean, both in the Americas, like, well, all of it really. The, the religious groups are going to be the ones handing the stuff out according to the international morality. They always do with religious um, community leaders in, especially in rural communities. I think that that's the religious aspect that, that will happen. Yeah. Uh, uh, I, I, I heard this conversation or this, uh, this uh, video by Fabio Vigi referencing Lacan you know, the psychoanalyst. Mm -hmm. And, you know, basically he he said this quote that um, historically morality has been been weaponized uh, to control every neurotic neurotic that wants to be good. Uh, And so when I hear things framed in moral terms, I I always have a, a, you know, I actually am suspicious immediately, you know, um, because uh, obviously, you know, there are things that, you know, I think are kind of universal, maybe, <laughs> you know, like respecting life and, you know, respecting vulnerable people. Uh, but by and large, when morality is brought into the picture, it's just like the framing for, you know, the, the vaccine, right? Just get a vaccine, save grandma, save other people, you know, be a good citizen, be a good person. Um, I think it's just a slippery slope, you know, to uh, that we need to be watchful for. Uh, and you know, obviously religion uses that to control people. And and, and now we are entering, a, we are actually, I, I, I understand the whole pandemic through religious lenses, you know, scientism. Yeah. You know, people who believe in science, but they don't, you know, they don't practice the scientific process. Yeah, yeah. it's been like a rebirth, you know, like renaissance, like it says, um, like a total rebirth for some people. And all the ritual that's been involved. Yeah. Um, but I think, I mean, the fact that so much of the of the CCT is being, like, will be and has been carried out by, you know, institutional religious organizations, like it totally supports what you were saying earlier, Allison, about, you know, they know that people are, most people on the planet, like, are inherently spiritual, and that that spirituality has power, and so it makes sense that it's not just that they can exploit that, it's that they have to, because it has so much power. Yeah, the, that last line that's underlined, the fragmentation in society must give way to integration. I mean, that, what, what could, for, for me, what, what, what is that other than the, like you could put it on a on a flag for this recent COVID period, you know, of like everyone must. But it's very strange because I do feel like that has really been what they're trying to do. Everything that is on, on the margins that doesn't fit has to be either brought in or cast aside. Um, and that's what they're going to call integration. And, and who would have you wouldn't necessarily know it just from reading that. But that that is literally the hallmark for a totalitarian authoritarian system to basically say you will either submit to our plan or you're out and where you have no place 
And if you are out, we are going to make your life very miserable. And that's because at the very same time, while they're saying, let's all be on board, they are casting, you know, people aside using all sorts of measures. And we've heard about the, the vaccine stuff and things like that. Um, and, and if you don't get in, I think if you don't get on board with digital currency and if you don't get on board with blockchain, these are, there's going to be no place for you. Um, so that's, that's one thing. And the, the other thing I do think about, because while I, I currently, and I, I'm still looking through this through the lens of, of Marxism and believe that we are dealing with capitalism, I do know Fabio Vigi has also said, and it's interesting to me that he's saying that the capitalists themselves are essentially trying to do a trick of moving into a kind of feudal period, a feudal age. And, and I had, I had thought that the, that the religion and the importance and the centrality of religion as a mechanism of control was a, was a feature of a, of a previous period of a previous epoch. And it looks like um, it looked, if there's truth that capitalism can be reverted to a new kind of feudalism, it's very possible then that religion and scientism can, can find a whole new lease on life as a mechanism of control um, in the same way that religion and the state were so bound in, under feudalism uh, as, as the way that the, it was the basis by which a king establishes authority was his connection to the church and the mm-hmm. sword as a, as a, as a, you know, that was a, a cross, you know, and, wow. and seen similarly. And so I, again, I, I don't necessarily know if capitalism is turning to feudalism, but I'm keeping an open mind, you know, uh, Allison, you and I don't necessarily agree on, but there's so much of what you've said that has come to pass that <laughs> I think it's very important to keep an open mind and be prepared to, to, to push aside things that don't work. Currently, I see it as capitalist uh, competition, um, but there are some weird things going on that I cannot answer. So this one, I'm wondering if they're actually talking about universal basic income. And I will say like at the top section where I have it underlined, it just references sort of like people adapting rapidly. So this is being framed in an evolutionary construct. Okay. His whole book is, and so, and that's very important when we think of eugenics, right? Is that the, it's the next evolutionary step. And he's saying, well, but he's more of a Lamarckian evolutionary than a Darwin. So that like people can make quicker adaptations and saying like, look how quickly we adjusted to the radio and television, right? So like viewed in this light, the telephone, radio, and television must represent some subtle structure foundation changes in the brain mind. So he's already imagining how technology changes the brain in in quick and direct ways in an evolutionary construct. But then it goes on to say like, They're looking for the starry-eyed genius, right? Which is totally like not socialist, right? Waiting for the hero to save the day. And that that he he will be an economic genius with a plan, a capital P, a world plan so simple and so workable that it will be accepted and applied as quickly and naturally as were the machines that preceded it. And then will dawn the age of ideas and the mutants will come. This is the radio eugenics he's imagining like using radiation to make geniuses. The mutants will come not as solitary figures, but in increasing numbers to function in laboratories of thought. Now, and this is, like I said, these are, this is not a jokey person. This is someone who's very serious and very connected in this, this decades of research that I think was like happening behind 
the spectacle of the Cold War and, and, and stuff that we were meant to be busy with. But this idea of, I mean, do, does that not sound like UBI to you? I mean, do, do you, I mean, an ec, a genius economic plan that will be so quickly applied, just like a machine, and then we will have an age of ideas. I mean, it's the story that the left tells about UBI, I think, like, oh, we'll all be freed up to be like creative people and free time and all these things, which certainly is not going to happen on $500 or a thousand bucks a month for sure. But, um, I mean, this or the discussion of machines as well. Yeah. Blockchain. Being, mm -hmm, to be able to free up time so that you can become, as you said, creative. Well, and the presumption that the machines that came before were like somehow implemented naturally. Right? <laughs> yeah. And this, this com this quote feels much bigger than UBI to me. I mean, um, it feels more like, um, you know, I think this, I think of transhumanism when I, when I, when I see this um, and turning, you know, just turning people. Yeah. I, I don't know what to say about it. It's, it's. Okay. It's, let's go to the next one. And then wait, we can. Elsa, can I just, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. who are the mutants in this? Like, was that like cyborg? Well, like. I, I, you know, honestly, guys, from what I can tell, and I haven't read the other book, but they talk about him a lot within the context of radio eugenics, like radiation, that they are literally going to catalyze, like take measures into our own hands to hasten this evolutionary process of like transcendental universal consciousness to turn us, which literally is, if I hadn't heard of the moonshot project, which to me is the logical extension of this, like, oh, we are going to live as beings of light, right? I mean, it fits into the whole ascension narrative, like the constructed corporate ascension, right? Like we're going to ascend as this evolutionary new form of being, and we're all going to be unified in peace, love, and happiness on a frequency level. And so I think like, that's why this has been baked into the cold war era because literally, and I have to say, there's a, um, a woman I came in touch with who was formerly a, um, in healthcare, I think a nurse who was seeing things go wrong like a decade ago. And she create, created a blog, I think it's called, like if you Google polio forever, but like looking at polio as radiation poisoning and the backstory behind the Atomic Energy Commission and the use of radioactivity. That when I see this and look at the moonshot, it's very troubling, especially I'll have another slide about like Battelle, but that potentially some of the, the the Cold War era atomic interventions and even post-Cold War related to radiation in medical settings were part of like a much larger grand experiment that are now ending us up in the internet of bio nano things and like precision medicine, you know, radio, you know, radioactive and you know, the nanotechnology stuff. The crazy radioactive oatmeal from you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right? Well, that's what I think. I have a like a slide that links to that later. But yeah, like that they were they were messing around and that they knew that they were hoping to get like mutants in a like the mutants are like the telepathic people with ESP. Like, and then we can all have ESP once we're sufficiently irradiated. Isn't that well, great, guys? And at this point, I'm pretty sure at this this was happening at this point is you would, there's, 
you would generate on fields of lawns that bacteria would grow on. You would generate mutations by um, shooting the bacteria sample with radiation or give it a chemical treatment. Um, and, and it would hasten DNA changes. And then you take that field of bacteria and you put it on a particular lawn that bacteria should not be able to grow on. And you, I, you look for the mutants that can grow on that because there's something different about them, but you've hastened the, well, you've catalyzed the, the, the mutation creation process by hitting them with radiation. So uh, those, those things were already going on and that, that wasn't something that was like science fiction. Those were real things. They, it looks like they're just thinking of it potentially in the field of humans. Yeah. So maybe maybe we're gonna be selected, right, at the end because we're <laughs> be the bacteria. Yeah, <laughs> and like a mutant some days. And there are two parts to the experiment, right? There's the hitting of the bacteria with the mutation, but then there's the environment that bacteria should not be able to live on that you put them onto it. Had you not hit them with the radiation, all the bacteria die. But if you hit them with the radiation and then you put them in the environmental field that bacteria should not be able to grow on, you look for the colonies that do grow after you've um, messed with their DNA. So that's- well, and, and Jen, like she, she what, I was in touch with her before I went out to Utah. And one of the things she was working, looking, and it's interesting because Salk, when he was working on his polio vaccine, he was at Pitt, same place as Riser. They were, I mean, institutions are large, but they were both, in the same, you know, geographic location. Um, and they were talking about um, the gamma globulin experiments in Provo, Utah, and that how they very closely aligned with the radioactive fallout. And so I, I think her sense was there was some intention of, can we preemptively use some sort of protective element, like from, I think it was framed as like fallout from war, but maybe not maybe it was fallout from sort of some forced evolutionary mutation process so and there was a cadmium sulfate experiment done in poor neighborhoods in the united states where they would spray them with cadmium sulfate uh, which would they believed would actually protect you from radiation poisoning or from radiation in some ways oh, wow. so that was something that and that's like that's like stuff you can see on a mainstream news actually said well this happened in the 50s and 60s and it's a little uncomfortable to talk about but there it was, um, but that was, I didn't know about that, you know, but that was like- St. Louis, early, was St. Louis one of those cities, I think? I don't remember which cities, but it was like early chemtrail kind of stuff. Yeah. All right, well, let's, I think this is my last quote is the next one, I think. Let me, can we go to the next slide? Oh, there it is, okay. So, so what's interesting is this guy, Hilton Rice, uh, was working with um, these folks at Duke in the parapsychology lab. And he was a correspondent with Oliver Reiser, who wrote the book that, you know, that I've been talking about. And they carried on a correspondence for a couple of years, like a very intense about this paranormal experiences or whatever. And it really affected Reiser. And then like one day out of the blue, I think the guy was in his mid fifties. He just got up, he just dropped dead. And everyone's like, we just can't believe that like Hilton just dropped dead today, whatever. But this was evidently like the last letter and it was, it's in this book. And so this is how he concludes. He says, there must be a new religion growing out of scientific revelation. Okay, so we, that's scientism, right? I have been thinking of a universal temple, a hookup. Now, again, this is in the 30s. A hookup of exquisite edifices 
with incense, colors, and music to soothe the senses, and a radio voice that speaks to all as one, so that a kind of mass hypnosis is achieved, and the individuals feel themselves joined in a unitary consciousness. Quite a fanciful idea, isn't it? With all good wishes, cordially yours, Hilton Rice. <laughs> and I'm, I'm looking at that, I'm going, that's the metaverse. Like he wants to throw everyone into some hypnotic, scientifically programmed, mass hypnotic unification. And then, and then, you know, later on, I, I'm talking about some young moon, the Moonies, like that it's church of, it's the unification church. And also Laszlo, who's one of these systems theorists who's involved in all of this, um, Hungarian, one of these, you know, Hungarian Martians, um, he, like, he's very connected to the Baha'i faith. And Baha'i is also this interfaith, harmonic science and religion unity. And so I really do feel like it is this integration of science with humanism and faith on blockchain that is, is really pretty intense. So I don't know if you guys have any thoughts on that, but to, to me, when I read that, I was just like, yeah, they had in mind, like where they were going with all this for a long time. I was just thinking when it said there quickly to soothe the senses, incense, colors, and music. I was thinking of that technology that you used, like a like a like a suit, in order to enter yeah. into the haptic uh, suit. Uh huh. I was That's thinking I... of the Amazon like <laughs> mental health box thing, you know, that they piloted or whatever. <laughs> Step in here and do a meditation video, and you'll feel great about going back to your. Crappy assembly line. No, it 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 definitely speaks to uh, you know the the hubris of the Diego Rivera vision of changing the world. You know, um, of the idea that like we're gonna like take this existing technology and we're gonna make a better world out of it. Um, so I, I just feel like it's a it's a great quote. Whether you like it or not, <laughs> right. we'll hypnotize you if you don't really like it. Yeah. Did I space Allison? But did you say much about who this guy, not um Rice, but um what was it, Oliver Riser? Riser about yeah. who he was and so, so he he was a professor of philosophy at the University of Pittsburgh. And um for like 40 years, um like through the 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 early 30s through the 60s. And he was like he, he corresponded with Einstein and he had these, he, he was, pu he published a lot and it was all about this idea of frequency and electromagnetism and like sort of shared consciousness and brains. And then in um, later toward like later in his life, he connected with this Julia Stolman, actually not even that much later, probably by the forties, 1949, um, Julia Stolman and Fritz Kunst had created this thing called the World Institute in, uh, affiliated with Case Western Reserve. At that point, it was just Western Reserve in Ohio. And that's, um, it's in Cleveland and that's where uh, Standard Oil was incorporated. That's where uh, Rockefeller was from. And so they had, essentially they, they've been trying to build this global brain since the forties and they, they created several, um, they launched several conferences in 1949 and like the chair of their committee, it was called the Foundation for Integrated Education. And um, if you go on the internet archive, um, Julia Stolman and Fritz Kunz, Fritz Kunz was actually the head of theosophy in North America, which is very 
like powerful in terms of this esoteric stuff that's going on. He was, he was born in Adyar, India. So this is sort of the Western colonial, he was working with Annie Besant there in, in India, in Adyar. So it's, it's this sort of occulted esoteric, but melded with high level, um, academic access, um, because the, the chair of this foundation for integrated education, uh, his name was Her Henry, Henry Marginal. I think it was Henry Marginal. He was the chair of physics at Yale and his focus was material reality. And so I started mapping, like they had two launch conferences in 1949. One was at Wellesley and one was at the Montecito school. Um, and so then I made this like giant map of stuff around like Montecito is outside of Santa Barbara and talk about mission system. Like that was because Junipero Serra's papers are still in Santa Barbara. So that was pretty intense in Ohio. So the theosophists are all set up in Ohio with Krishnamurthy. So um, anyway, I've just been mapping all the people who like spoke at their conferences, who were on their committees. And it's like the highest level Ivy League individuals um, who are, and, and scientists, research scientists who were focused on Theoretical physics, uh, Manhattan Project, uh, Navajo ritual, Aboriginal ritual, um, mystic, like this guy, Pitiram Sarapkin was in the group and he uh, was a Harvard applied sociologist. He created a whole institute called um, the Institute for Creative Altruism funded by Eli Lilly, the drug company. So they were interested in quantifying everything, making everything a number. There was a guy, Robert Hartman, and he was the father of the 401k, but also corporate good citizenship and love. And he wanted to measure all of that, like measure love, measure altruism, get it in the machine. So it is all of this integration is very mechanical. It's a mechanical, it is the mechanical angel whispering in Cortez's ear. I mean, that's what this thing is. And these were very well-connected people. And it's, it seems like um, some other people have actually been speaking about it online. And that's where I started to dig in. But I've been literally going through and writing everybody's name down and who they were, because I feel like it's like you get the contours of what it is they must have been looking for. And I, I think Later, um, uh, Oliver Reiser and Julia Stolman and Irvin Laszlo and Alexander, Alexander Maslow, Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs, like they were all in a book um, called Emergent Man that came out in 1973. So this stuff didn't go away. It just kept being emergent. And like, I think if you, if we click through the next couple slides, I'll just, I think this is the background to be like, I know this might sound crazy, but you should pay attention because these are serious people. Um, Andy, if, yeah, so this is this is um, about uh, Dr. C. Hilton Rice, who was a child psychologist in Montgomery, Alabama. So again, there's some weird stuff. He was working with um, uh, Joseph Banks Rhine. Uh, that was all part of this. Rhine was in the Stolman group as well. And that was out of the Duke parapsychology lab. So like you're not expecting to see 1937, like Duke University has this parapsychology lab, but it does. And they're being very scientific about the psychic research. And then we can click ahead again. Um, so this is just some of the, um, Julia Stolman and Fritz Kunst had two different periodicals. One was called, um, okay, well, Julia Stolman, his was called Fields Within Fields Within Fields. And I think they were talking about 
like physics fields, but also alternate reality fields. And it ran from 1969 to 1975. It was a quarterly journal. Um, but in 1971, he had a whole journal. Um, they were all focused on this thing called the Unibuts, which is essentially an interplanetary kibbutz. Mm. So that's their model was like, it's melding the 70s space travel um, with the idea of collectivism. And so that's, that is a big part of it. Um, I guess we've talked about that. To me, that looks like a rather esoteric symbol, like at least a, how do you say it? Like the snake eating its tail. Uh, this is the Mooney project uh, with these very high level Nobel prize winning scientists. Uh, here is Sorapkin, uh, the Harvard uh, professor of applied sociology and love. And he's talking about the search for incorruptible people, that he's looking for elite young people. And he's going to create, to, in order to access his special academy, um, let's see, that they were going to have a, a luxurious furnished room with soft lounges, rich food, and scantily clad girls from Hollywood, and that they would have to stay in the room for three days and not avail themselves of food or women. And if they could do it for three days and they pass and they get to join this, but he's Harvard, right? This is a Harvard guy. This is the mentality. And then this is the book emergent man and oh, modern current, modern currents, currents in modern thought. That's the other one, but they're on the internet archives. And I would really encourage people, especially the emergent man one to look because like, again, Abraham Maslow, these are high level people. And in reading that first chapter, it's it's very eugenicist. Like I was not expecting that. I was expecting this to be like some nice cozy guy who cares about people because it's like the hierarchy of needs. And literally he's saying some people are better suited specimens than others. And those people should be the choosers of the things for society. And if they choose and you don't like it, you should just suck it up because eventually you get used to it because they're the good choosers. So just get over it. Like that's the chapter that he's he's in. Now, I, I don't really know how to explain that. I haven't read him much more beyond that, but it's pretty shocking some of the stuff that is being said here. Again, um, this intersects with, you know, the space program. And I think based on what I'm seeing, it feels like that the space program had a lot deeper layers of like altered consciousness that it not wasn't necessarily outer space. It may have also been inner space. And that some of the, the Cold War era stuff was being embedded in the space program, like in some sort of interdimensional stuff. And I will say there, there's an individual, Barbara Marks Hubbard, who was part of this group. She was very into the space um, advocacy. And it was quite interesting because essentially what they were doing is they were going around to young people, impressionable young people in the 70s and saying, everything is really bad, but it will be better in space. We should just leave here and go into space. And then we will have a, like a more just world out there. And when I'm reading that and I'm thinking, and she's like, and they would all be dressed up like Star Trek. And I'm thinking, guys, Star Trek was a Fabian socialism. <laughs> like that, it, it's a space Fabian socialist program. Like, but it was, Fab, it's like, because if you look at what Mark Andreessen is saying, like of the venture Andreessen Horowitz and his wife, Laura Arrilaga, like she set up impact investing at Stanford. And he's literally going out saying reality privilege is a thing. And, you know, the real world sucks. It's never going to get any better. And the only way to have justice, social justice, whatever, like not racism is, is to live in the metaverse. 
And I'm like, it's the exact same narrative. In the 1970s, it will like, we will escape all of the bad things of the material reality and we'll go into space. And then look, we can have Star Trek. Or, but now the new version is the metaverse only is run by the CIA. Maybe they were both run by the CIA. I don't know. <laughs> well, I would certainly say that the search for incorruptibles, again, um, this is, it seems like the capitalist class is great at inverting um, because I actually can see how for him, you will find the incorruptible through this process. And I do feel like, you know, like the stuff that, um, what's the guy, who's that, who's, who's the director, eyes wide shut? Yes, yeah, you know, Stanley Kubrick did that movie, which spoke about these, and you hear about it in the secret societies and the dark things that they are, that they do. And I believe in, in their own minds, I think that, that that is how they create a, a, a society of incorruptibles, people who are wholly dedicated to, um, to mayhem um, and to selfishness and to a world just for them and, and who would be fine, who's, who just breathe uh, eugenics ideas because that's just the world that they've been and raised in. Um, so I, I do feel like it, 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 it adds up to me um to how a capitalist class builds a class ideologically for itself and of itself one that's fit you know do the kinds of things that they need to do in order to make the world the you know the way they want to make it like sounds like this guy was a good chooser himself <laughs> <laughs> you know and 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 again like uh these people again he's a harvard person you know these people go to harvard for a reason uh harvard you know i remember i have i was forced to apply to harvard and i remember that process was like you know talking to alumni and getting their approval and then showing ambition and this and that and they select a type of person you know and obviously i didn't get in and i'm glad i didn't i don't know what kind of human i would be right now um but um Again, this is how this system gets perpetuated, you know, um, and I guess maybe I'm being redundant to that point, but um, yeah, no, I don't want to choose for anybody else. <laughs> I don't want to <laughs> have to choose. I want to choose this for myself. You know, yeah. This is what I learned by doing uh, the organizing that I did in the early in the pandemic. You know, when I myself was going that nonprofit bullshit rabbit hole where like I, I was like, you know, buying that uh, narrative of, you know, I'm a good chooser, you know, I'm a good, good intentions, you know, and, and then I realized, you know, hell no, like, this is not like, there's no way to fix this. And so my energy will go to like, you know, revolutionary work, whatever that means, you know, but I just know that it's not that, you know, and, and my partner and I often like, you know, are frustrated, you know, our fellow organizers or people or like nonprofit system, because just to bring it back to the, you know, the conditional cash transfers, uh, the systems that exist swallow people, chew them out, spit them out, brings them back in there. You know, like my partner herself works for people, the most abused, neglected people in, in San Francisco, one of the richest city in the world. She works in the depths of hell, basically. And, and she sees how her organization you know, gives people housing. She's supposed to work with people with, with you know, have been traffic, abuse, uh, women, mainly. And, and, and how the organization themselves 
puts them through the system and then spits them out just for numbers, you know, in, 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 uh, you know, in, in, again, it's just this idea that, you know, we can just gather crumbs and, and distribute them as long as we had the right set of data, you know, in, in good people choosing, you know, with, with good intentions and, it's just delusional and it's crazy. And, and, and I guess people are not paying attention to these systems, how they, they are working and they're just, and the energy goes into perfecting these systems. And, and then the workers themselves get, you know, yeah. uh, chewed up and, and the good ones leave, you know, yeah. like the ones that are willing to submit to this system stay in the system. And they, and they grew up to be the boss ladies, you know, in the nonprofit system you know, and, and people of, of color, and it happens in so many ways, but that's what this steers in me, you know, this the good chooser part, the good, the, no, I don't want anybody to choose for me, I don't want to choose for anybody, you know, I want to collaborate to make a society, you know, in deciding, it's not going to be perfect, I'm not a utopian person, we're going to have, we're going to fucking disagree on shit, you know, and it, it's just, it bothers me, you know, like, these people have so much influence, and, and I actually see a lot of these thoughts in, in liberal progressive circles and, you know, in, in, in you know, like uh, designing a better society, deciding, designing better cities, designing, you know, better humans, designing very biology, you know, in, 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 you know, like, again, implicit in there is this notion that, um, that we don't trust humans, you know, just like this person, right? We need to build a better society. That that reality is bad, right? People are bad naturally, you know. In 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 and also we want to control death, right? And and so we are going against all these. We don't want to get sick, right? Just the pandemic was all about that. Getting sick is bad, you know. You can never ever get sick again. And so you know, it's it's just scary that this is the dominant. This is not just Harvard people now because. I see this kind of uh, thought in people from Berkeley, in people from, you know, SF State, in people in the community circles that I, uh, you know, I organize with and that right now I don't see eye to eye with, you know. And again, the people that stay in those systems are complicit and or just completely oblivious to a lot of this shit. You know, because again, like going back to Russell Luxembourg, you know, and, and I don't know who said this quote, but, uh, Revolutionaries are shot down by reformists. Wow. You know, and this happens in these circles. You know, like people, if you don't want to comply, if you don't want to be part of the bullshit and the, you know, like the sucking up to people and, and, and not challenging the system, you get chewed out, you get ostracized, and you get pushed out. And, and those are your options. You know, if, if we don't challenge the system, we'll completely destroy them and, and actually take control of our communities you know, uh, to serve life in, in control of our labor ultimately and not play this game, you know, otherwise we're gonna let these kind of people choose for us. <clears throat> labor and spirit, I think both mind, you know, I think it's, yeah, it's both pieces, but well said. I will just say too, on the, on the psychical thing, uh, Sorokin's father was actually, so he was Russian and then he came over. I think he might've been at University of Wisconsin or Minnesota, maybe University of Minnesota first, which I can't, I always mix up Wisconsin, Minnesota. It's terrible. But one of them was like actually the, the key eugenics university, like early on, even before Cold Spring Harbor. Um, 
but his father was a, a Russian icon painter. So he has this mystic background. Stolman was very active. He brought over um, the Lubavitcher Rebbe in 1941. So he was very, he and his son, Stephen were very connected to Shabbat, uh, Kabbalah, Orthodox Judaism. Um, Fritz Kuntz was theosophist. So all of them have sort of this mystical lot through line, like beyond some of this stuff too. So that's why I keep, anyway, that informs my understanding of what they're after, I think. I don't know, you wanna, yeah. So, and this is just, this is building on the Unibuts, but um, just in case we thought that that was only like 1973, this is a 700 page volume by Ben Gertzel and his dad, Ted, <laughs> who is a former sociology professor at Rutgers. And his focus was on cyber socialism and conspiracy theory. And Ben, if you don't remember, he, he worked with, uh, Hanson guy on, he built the brain of Sophia. So he's the AI guy and he got his PhD at Temple. But, um, you know, and this is gonna be kind of, but essentially they are uplifting again, the kibitz idea of this modern globalism um, that we will have fair, you know, I guess it's the automated luxury communism model, right? But like the through technology and blockchain, you know, you'll see global brain in there again. and. Um, sort of trying to navigate that with the libertarians, I guess. And so it, they're, this, this book, and I have the link here, you know, it's useful to look at. It's over 700 pages long. It's, it's edited. So there's chapters from a lot of different people, but they're looking at the singularity and very much linking the blockchain, the social brain, the global brain, and sort of a an engineered collectivist outlook in, in some matter, but it's hard to say whether you would count that as socialism or libertarianism. Like, you know, they're trying to thread the needle, right? Like they're trying to get it on both sides. Um, and uh, I, I can't quite read those quotes, but that's, that's the gist of it. And at the end, I guess it says, with future advances in artificial intelligence, these networks will not be limited to humans, but may include intelligent computers or robots with diverse degrees of autonomy. So I think, I think eventually we're gonna get back into conditional cash transfer, but the diverse degrees of autonomy, I think that they would like to apply that to people as well, right? Like they're talking about computers and robots, but like we're all going to have diverse degrees of autonomy programmed into our digital identity or like at the very least our digital twins are gonna have that. So um, I just wanted to throw this slide in for a reference. And withering away of the state is straight from Lenin. Um, so there he's just, it's, it's like, it's like bait um, put before, um, you know, people who who are on the left who have a this notion of fighting capitalism um, uh, through socialism. Um, so yeah, I mean, this is definitely a guy who's he's read he's read Lenin, um, probably read Red Marx, and the idea that he's saying, well, the the kibbutz didn't didn't work as for socialist purity, but we'll try this one just bigger. Yeah, yeah. Well, and he was actually presenting in Spain, Ted, the dad, on cyber socialism in 2015, as recently as 2015. So, um, you know, this is an idea and, you know, it even goes back to, you know, cyber sin in Chile and Stafford beers. And I never could understand that. Like, why would you bring in an English systems theory guy to like run your Latin American socialism? That makes no sense. But I mean, now it does, right? If it's, it's not what you thought. Um, but he was lecturing on that. And what I find, again, in the, the esoteric realm of interest is that he ended up retiring to Marietta, Ohio. 
And like Marietta, Ohio is probably like, it's the small town in Ohio, but it is the location of one of the most prominent Adena mounds of the indigenous, the Mississippian mound building cultures. And um, it was where Washington opened up the Northwest territories into Ohio. And Ohio is this central place, both with J.D. Rockefeller and Standard Oil and Battelle and Columbus and Knowledge Works and Strive Together and these mound building cultures. And it seems so boring, but there's stuff going, there's energetically stuff going on in Ohio. And I find it very intriguing that Ted Gertzel, whose like son lives in Hong Kong building the AI robots would move to Marietta, Ohio to like, wrap things up after, I think he was in central New Jersey before, you know, out greater Philadelphia. Um, so I, I find I'm, I'm always intrigued. I'm like, Ted, why'd you go to Marietta? I have to say when I, when I talked to Stephen Newcomb of, he wrote Pagans in the Promised Land. And he said once he was in Marietta, Ohio, and he just happened to walk up in the historical society, somebody like it was locked, but somebody was going in. He's like, can I, you know, do you mind if I look around? And the guy's like, sure. He comes in and there's George Washington's masonic apron in there <laughs> so there's a lot of there's a lot of imprinting going on all right we can <laughs> next one yeah let's do that i think well eventually we'll get back to mexico here we go okay okay so anyway so we're gonna like loop back into um the the conditional cash transfers in mexico because again we've we've set it against the backdrop of integrating society into, you know, this post-national, post-human, post-religion, full-on science world, right? And so we're going to be engineering society towards that end. And this is all literally social engineering, right? And and so the point I want to make is that this was happening throughout the 1990s. And the technology, even the cloud-based computing, was really in its very early stages. But they were getting the policy infrastructure and figuring out probably like the sociology of it, like how do you work with people like even without the technology so that when they got the technology in hand, like they could apply those, um, you know, what they learned, apply their findings. And so this is a report um, that was done afterwards uh, about sort of evidence and practice. And so all of this is the impact investing is always evidence-based, right? It's all about evidence because evidence is the data and the data is on the one hand, um, surveillance, you know, it justifies, legitimizes, legitimates ongoing surveillance of, you know, vulnerable populations. And then on the other hand, it creates these huge data sets for machine learning. So that's what evidence is. And it's always framed to the liberal class as like accountability, right? We just want you to be accountable to the taxpayers or to the politicians or whatever. And it sounds so good, but really it's about surveillance. So I wanted to to bring this up because this is in one of the, the this overview report and they were talking about the impacts and again in Mexico the expectation of getting this cash which was directed towards um, low-income women and their children predominantly revolved around meeting certain expectations about healthcare visits and wellness and then around school attendance and participation. And so they were evaluating the impact on the children because again, they, I think this was maybe 10 years later, they needed sort of distance to be like, oh, how did the kids turn out? And so one of the things they were talking about that again, along the lines of the radioactive oatmeal, they were talking about that there wasn't much of an impact on the nutrition 
because they were giving supplements to the kids. And they said, because there was a mistake in the iron formula that caused low absorption, blah, 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 didn't have a big impact. And then it goes on to say, even though the evaluations detected the problem with this iron being not right, as early as 2001, the iron formula wasn't changed until 2005. Okay, so they're admitting in their own report, like they screwed up and they didn't actually do anything. They said it was partly because while they didn't have a measurable impact, they certainly posed no harm and they were popular among beneficiaries. So they helped improve compliance with other program conditions. And so this is like how they talk about the people, like literally they're, they're supposed to be helping, you know, food insecure families. And this is how they're talking about them. Like, well, we're going to prescribe them something that we found out doesn't work. And for five years, we're just going to still give them it to anyway, because we're using it to nudge them to do the stuff that we want to do. And then my underlying question then is what was in that supplement? Like what was actually in there? Because that's strange. Like you don't make that kind of error for no reason. And so I, you know, I'm, I'm, if there's anybody out there who has thoughts on that, I know when I was on pay, Facebook, there was this person, his name was Pete Ramon. I think he was looking a lot at nanotechnology and his, while we were looking at graphene, he was definitely saying iron was a huge piece of this. So like, I don't know if some of the like iron levels are part of making the body more acceptable to the new nanoelectronics that are coming or what have you. Um, but I think it shows a lack of care for the people. And again, it's conditional. We are going to make you do these things that we tell you to do to get this very, the, the crumbs, as Kenny says, like to get these crumbs, you're going to have to do exactly what we do. And we're going to tell you to do stuff that doesn't work. And who knows, maybe it does actually cause harm, but we don't care because we're using it to make you do what we want you to do. But I, it just, I couldn't help but thinking about uh, birth control pills with the iron placebo that I assume still goes on. But for years, like I remember being told, like, take the placebo pill. It does nothing, but it might, sometimes it contains a little extra iron, which you maybe need, even though there's very little scientific evidence for that. Um, but it, it, it exactly like not in this context, but in a different context, right? Like it, it helps improve compliance taking the other pills for the other wow. three weeks. So you just do it. And I, I mean, I did it for years. Yeah, yeah. Like you just take this pill, even knowing consciously, I mean, these guys didn't know it, but you, you do like you, it just, wow, you just get conditioned. Yeah. Wow. I had never thought about that. Yeah. It just, again, this word compliance, it's been coming up a lot. Right. And again, when put up against, health out, what was really the point here? Was it a health outcome or was it compliance? And they kind of are admitting that like, once again, is it a health outcome that you have to get a vax or is it compliance it, over and over again? The, the, get the ultrasound. <laughs> yeah, the, the compliance is continues to come up as the actual real point of the, of the, of the thing that is being pushed on people. Okay, so this is, um, again, focusing, I think, Eduardo, you mentioned, did you mention about like in utero, like pregnancy, like they're really tracking children from like the antenatal care. And this is where it gets complicated because on the one hand, you want to advocate for women to have access to quality healthcare. And on the other hand, 
many people in the, the healthcare system space, especially around like pregnancy and childbirth, like there's a range of approaches, right? Medicalized versus lesser medicalized around, you know, women giving birth to babies. And um, so they want to control all of that. And in fact, like the first baby born on blockchain was in Tanzania in 2018, and they were tracking all of the prenatal compliance on blockchain. That was a central part of it. And so um, as part of this, and this is connected to the um, United Nations Sustainable Development Goal 3, which is health, there everything is getting connected to inter individual communication technology, ICT technology. So they're going to nudge pregnant women in health behaviors. And they were doing this in, um, in Africa through the... Um, with the World Bank, uh, these programs where they were sending text messages with all of this information, but really it was about the nudging and the compliant behavior. Like, did you respond? Did you acknowledge? And the companies that were pushing out the educational materials, they were actually out of the Bay Area, and I can't remember the name. But in this, they're talking about in Progressa, um, an evidence-based policy, so that's code word for impact investing, and they are going to have a digital suite of tools to go along with their regular health check. So this is later on in the process, but it's connected with UNICEF. And again, um, what happens when you're getting push notifications about your pregnancy, um, some of which might be linked to global pharmaceutical companies or, you know, big pharma, big medical, maybe is a, like not a, around necessarily like your approach to child raising or your approach to childbirth, it's, it's, but you're going to be judged or your, your, your access to healthcare or food is going to be conditional on responding the right way. So if you go to the next image that has like a, a, a picture of the, the women, um, uh, so you can see, so it's like, you know, there are issues possibly with radiation, right? And so you're like, Hey moms, Everything you need is right here on this radiation tracking device. Like make sure you hold it all, all times, like maybe really close to your, you know, unborn child. Wouldn't that be smart? Cause we're going to tell you exactly what to do, um, you know, to be a good mom. And it's ridiculous. Only if you understand the motivations behind it from a global finance standpoint and from the global brain standpoint, there's a logic to it, but it's not about good health outcomes. It's about the compliance ritual. So. Um, you know, but hey, the messages are sent for free, you know, and if you don't have a phone, we'll give you one because everybody needs to have their global brain attachment. <laughs> so, yeah, and Jessica, I'm sure you have something to say, because this for me, I'm just thinking of the person from the luminaries that was talking about how her whole way of coming to a consciousness about many ways, the, the her consciousness around how unfree she was in society and how she we need to make ourselves free through building luminary village was in the process of becoming a mother and the experience of being forced to by the the western medical system to they said it was about making her a better like making her kid healthier but that's not her experience that it was really about her experience was it was about control so i don't even think allison you have to be even think it's that complicated i suspect and I actually do think we need to do a panel panel on mothers and and that people's experience in the Western medicine um, to speak about how it's it has nothing to do with health. Yeah, I mean it's like one of the most 
surveilled, monitored, tracked, like data heavy, um, medical uh, scenarios, you know, for a lot of women is the, the, the whole process pre and post pregnancy. Also can't help but um, laugh that Allison said push notifications for pregnancy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was unintended, but <laughs> I was like, oh, <laughs> Um, but yeah, I mean, I have a lot of thoughts on this, but my God, Can I just read this one line. So this is, it says we evaluate the impact of providing ad hoc information in general, but also the differentiated impact of sending information with high socio emotional content and format, as well as personalization. Like no offense, but as if like hormonal women don't already like have navigating enough crap that you have these apps that are sending like targeted like provocative social emotional messaging to you. That means just just like the, the language that is used in this 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 shit. It's not this is not written for the people they're trying to quote unquote help. You know, it yeah. sounds like they're writing, you know, for their investors, you know, for an investor <laughs> class. It's just ugh. they're not expecting these women to find this webpage. No. Exactly. You know, and again, it reminds me too of uh, the uh, my partner's job. The website is fucking a lie, basically, it, it, and it's 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 targeting other people. It's not targeting the people that they're trying to help. You know, so obviously it's a marketing ploy, and you know, and uh, you know, dressing things in beautiful adorned language that really just sounds like a. And in, in this case, I think they're they're appealing to the investors, which are the donor class. Yeah. With the phone too, I always just think of that great uh, Corey Morningstar line where she says like, if uh, if people didn't buy smartphones, then they would give them away for free in cereal boxes or something like that. (laughs) And it's like, yeah, well, with these um, cash transfer programs, they do. Yep. They do. Yep. They give you one. I, I, I wanted to make a comment on, I was wondering if, if these, um, these folks that are behind the SM, the personalized SMS uh, messaging systems are also in partnerships with other companies like Nestle, because, you know, Nestle was, um, was focusing, I, I remember at some point, um, to meet nutritional needs of Mexicans in Mexico. And, wow. and they're, and and they so their standard of what nutritional needs are for Mexicans is what they're going to influence these people through this data collection through reaching tons of people through this uh, digital system. And not only that, I know that I mean I mean I, what I'm afraid of is that this way of transmitting information that is personalized and that is controlled, watching these women sit there and being you know directly not just through not through just propaganda through through um through advertisements but rather through direct messaging of their phones i i it's it's what or commercial commercials on television i think that like i I think of nestle's campaign to uh to to try to say that infant formula was better at one point and that is um what I, I guess I'm just, what I'm just um, concerned about is how much of this is going to be 
lobbied or, or, or pushed by other companies to be in partnership to, to direct their, their products directly to women in order to tell them that this is better for their communities, for their babies, for their lives, mm -hmm. and to meet those nutritional needs. So I, I find this all just scary in the sense just to control people's behavior, behaviors, uh, people's uh, 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 food intake. So I just, yeah, that's the only thing I'm thinking of this whole thing. I, if, if Nestle was so convincing and so effective without direct messaging and just through commercialization in Mexico, this will just be another way to get through and get directly linked to people to encourage them to do what what um, is uh, right according to whoever they're partnering with. And I think too, like it'll be framed from a position of like inclusivity and em empowerment of women, right? Like, mm -hmm. like not some women like don't want to breastfeed and some, some women can't and you should be able to choose and it should be personalized, right? Like, and really what they mean is just like buy our product, like go away from what's really natural, what's really good for you and your baby. Um, yeah, like I see that corporate messaging a mile off. Takes me back to that, you know, last two years again, uh, uh, the vaccine is more powerful than natural immunity, right? And, mm -hmm. you know, every, the, this Pfizer, the, you know, you gotta get Pfizer, not Johnson and Johnson, you know, Pfizer will do it, you know, it, it's the powerful one. And, and again, like, it's just everything corporate is better for your health. Well, and that's why I think the whole like control of the food system and again, the green revolution in Mexico being central is because a lot of what's us is also our microbiome is also all the stuff that's in and on us and in our guts and all of that stuff. And in that connection, like between baby and mother and the birth canal and the breastfeeding, like it's all about the microbial like interactions and these complex things that mesh you into your environment. And if you create this sort of clean and clinical separation, and then you, you frame it as precision, right? Precision nutrition, right? And, and it has this eugenics thing, only now it's not even going to be called eugenics anymore. I have this great clip of um, Dominic Cummins, who was the advisor to Boris Johnson, who is behind this like ARPA, the new ARPA medical stuff. And he's it literally talks about like, you should educate children based on their genomic sequence, like straight up eugenics on his blog. And he was asked in a hearing last year, you know, does, does he believe in eugenics as a science and that it should be funded? And, and it was a black woman asking him, you know, and he just said, well, I don't know what you mean by eugenics, but this synthetic biology is really great. And I think it's, it's very important because of the pandemic and it, on and on and on. And so like that conversation is there only now we've normalized eugenics, right? And now it's actually, as you said, Jessica, it's going to be empowering, right? We have a custom blend just for you to like fix all the things that are wrong with you, you know, and, and, and it's going to feed into all of that. And, and it may not even be a sale because literally they may program your benefit that you have, you know, well, I mean, I guess if you're breastfeeding, hopefully you always have a choice, but like, who knows how they can control things? I don't know. Um, no, they'll have you track it. Like, it. They have women like track their menstrual cycles, like, yeah. you know, all the apps, like that's the whole industry, like track, like how many times a day your kid latches and, you know, they'll find a way to 
Well, and I will say um, there's a whole section, like the long-term birth control is being used in really nefarious, like the, the injectable birth control, um, like for women in prison. Oh, you'll get a shorter parole if you take, put in this birth control. Right. I mean, then they were doing that in Oklahoma with the backing of the Kaiser foundation, I believe. So, um, and you know, and Bill Gates has already worked with MIT on remote control, birth control, like implantable birth control, remote control. So yeah, this eugenic stuff totally never went away. And, and you really have to kind of get a grip on like the U S but it's all framed as progressivism. I think that's the thing that has hit me so hard as you always imagine like eugenics, like it is, it's a terrible thing, but it was framed as a positive, right? We're getting rid of those feeble people. Like we're going to make sure that that doesn't like mess up our gene pool. And, and it's a, it's progress and it's really messed up. So, okay, let's keep going. Cause I know we're getting close. Um, but okay. So this is just some images. Um, I, I, it's a close up of the map. I don't have, I'm trying, my eyes are so bad. Um, Santiago Levy, uh, he was the guy who helped implement it along with Jose Gomez, I think. Levy came out of Boston University. So again, he's US trained. Um, Zadillo and Gomez like met each other through the Central Bank of Mexico. And, um, you know, we've talked a little bit about where Zadillo went to afterwards, but I do think that the economic crash, uh, the rising rates of poverty, it was already at pretty high levels of poverty, but it just went off the charts after NAFTA. And then later in his presidency, he um, took away the tortilla subsidy. And so that was part of what I talked about in the article was at this time, there was a shift. Um, again, taking away the subsidy was one of them. And then even when the subsidy was still happening, there was a pivot into, I can't remember the company, but it was, is it like a masa? Like the original tortillas, there's very time into labor intensive to make, like make them the way you make them. And so there was like this shortcut, like fast food sort of co this company that was dominating the tortilla market and is also in the US market. I can't remember the name of the company, but it was, Maseca. do you know? Maseca. Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah. So it was like a shift in the production, like that would affect probably the nutritional quality. And also it had larger repercussions for culture because it was, again, making the, the traditional way was very labor intensive and it was predominantly women's work. And so again, that would be framed as empowerment, right? Like you don't have to do that anymore. Now you can do what we want you to do, but it was, it was breaking those traditional food ways. Um, beyond just the GMO, but actually the production and then to cut under like, and that the, the tortilla subsidy was supporting a lot of small scale farmers. Like it was providing the supports that then went away and then opened everything up for bigger agribusiness. I actually have had coworkers, uh, you know, from Mexico that uh, have shared their story, you know, and about how they, you know, used to be like uh, plant corn and then do, like a Jamaica flower, like a hibiscus flower. Oh, like, you know, yeah. see, they, they had this process, right? A traditional process. But then, you know, in the 90s, they were pushed out. You know, they couldn't, like, make, they couldn't sell their product to the market, you know. And uh, so then the next step was they were pushing to uh, working for the green giant, right? <laughs> in Mexico, the factory. And then eventually they made it to the U.S. 
So again, like you said, just speaking to what you said, like dismantling the, their way of life, not, not to say that it was perfect or I'm not going to idealize it. You know, there, there were struggles, you know, coming with that. But the people who implemented these uh, policies uh, knew what was going to happen. And so the story of a lot of Mexicans who came, you know, in, in, you know, in that Clinton and the walls and all this stuff, um, is is similar. You know, I've heard this story with different people, uh, people from Yucatan who used to farm uh, like uh, honey, you know, through the ejido system. You know, which is like a communal property situation. But even that was upset. You know, through these uh, market reforms you know, that really uh, gave uh, power to big corporations and, and disrupted the, the food, um, like a network, I guess, that existed previously. And so now what you have is people working in factories and, you know, and they cross to the US, whatever. And, and now you have another wave of people coming from Central America because there's another project going on in Central America of dismantling, you know, in, in corporatizing and manufacturing things down there. And so again, this is the story over and over uh, that I know personally of people yeah. who are working you know, in this country uh, undocumented. And I would just say too, on the, um, the food side is that within that microbiome, in a, in a, it actually affects brain function, like your gut function affects like, and, and also through the vagus nerve. So if, if you can start controlling people's, and you know that in terms of quality of food generally, but now they're going to flip it. And like DuPont is getting into the microbiome space, these commercial food productions, like they're looking at managing your gut, gut health for brain health, because there is this very direct connection. And that's scary. Like when you think about, again, babies too, because they're so they're small, you know, like the amount of food, like it's pretty intense. And now they've got all of these, like, I mean, imagine the chemicals that we, I grew up on were one thing, but now they've got all of these new, like hybrid things and synthetic biology things. We don't even know, like, I, I don't have no trust in the government or the FDA that any of this is adequately monitored. So. I think it's like every woman in America has Teflon in her breast milk. Yeah. And, and, and personally, in the U.S., it's incredible how many people have allergies. You know, like I grew up in the global south, exposed to things and dirt and all this stuff. But like everyone that I work with, not to say that I, I haven't been exposed yeah. as an adult, but my childhood and my mother, for example, my mother grew up under poverty. She didn't consume a lot of like uh, processed products. Like they even went to like uh, harvest wild beans in occasions but she's 67 and she's the healthiest out of all people you know around her you know, there's people who have pockets of medicine and my mom doesn't know what that is she, at the worst she'll take advil but my mother is very healthy because she wasn't exposed to all these toxins and in these you know diets that are from processed foods okay and these are just sort of an assortment but this is sort of a um all of the people at Penn and University of Chicago and Yale um, and the, the Inter-American Development Bank that were studying this project, right? So you've got the incubator and then you have all of the people who are like the academics who are making their money on writing the studies. You've got the, the Berkeley folks or whatever. And, um, and then on the left side is essentially like early systems of trying to figure out about how to deliver the payment systems. Because as we know, like, What's coming with this programmable money in the central bank digital currency is that like they're very concerned about the unbanked <laughs> because 
the unbanked are the less controllable. Like people who are in the informal economy and doing their own thing are not nearly as watchable as the people who are controlled on the, these um, payment systems. So, I mean, you guys might be able to say, I, I can't remember exactly, but there were like getting to banks or getting to the places that would provide your dis disper disbursement. Um, is it Disconsa? Like there was a certain grocery store that things could be used at. It was like a very controlled system. And ultimately they started to work with the credit card companies and these, um, uh, is it Bonsefi? Um, like different, like how to get the money into the hands of people and like what requirements they were going to ask for the know your customer. And, um, you know, one of the things that I thought was really interesting that I found out last week was that um, Cornell University, Ezra Cornell, he actually, his fortune was in Western Union and Telegraph. And then Cornell Technion, the, 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 the New York campus, that's the home of Commons Pass, which is the biometric passports and the digital currency systems. And so if you think about like global networked payment systems, like that literally the guy who created the university that was the technical innovator that then like a century later birthed the, the bio help birth like biometric passports tied to money. It's like we're in this crazy time loop. Like that's where I keep thinking sometimes like the fields within fields within fields, like are there inter, like what time frame are we on? And are we in a repeat pattern? Like how do we get out of this stuff? But um. Anyway, they were working out the payment stuff. And that was another key role that Mexico played with, like, how can we toy around and get the unbanked manageable through the financial system? And that was a key piece. So, um, oh, and then at the very bottom, I will I will mention there's um, Arturo Rosenbluth there in the blue circle. Um, he was a collaborator with Norbert Wiener, actually. So he was Mexican, but I think I'm trying to remember like his. His father was Hungarian and his mother might have been American. Um, and he was trained in Europe and then went to Harvard and then met up with Norbert Wiener at the Macy conferences about like programming the animal and the machine and the cybernetics. And because he was Jewish, he couldn't stay in the, like he couldn't find an academic position and he, he had to come back to Mexico, but then he became a conduit for a lot of money, like us money for scientific research into Mexico. And he was a cardiologist. And so again, you're talking about programming the man and the machine and Wiener is the mathematician. Um, but Rosenbluth, he, his, his thing was cardiology, the heart. And we know that the, that's what the global brain people want. They, it's like the heart-mind synthesis. So there's something I think that's very interesting about like what is Rosenbluth's role, not only in terms of funneling U.S. scientific research money into Mexico, like throughout his career and being that anchor point, but then like what kind of work were they really doing around like the car, like beyond the, the generalities of what we know, like, you know, heart disease or whatever about the heart, because I think that there's something, um, I think that the people in the know understand that there is something very special about the, the frequencies and stuff that are emitted through the bioelectrical fields. So I don't know exactly what they were doing, but that's that image. And we got Jim Heckman up there from University of Chicago. He's, he's, oh, he's out to take over the, the children of the world, literally. And, um, you know, I was just doing some mock-ups today about him in China. So, um, yeah.
Mexico isn't. So we can scoot Just ahead. a quick comment on, yeah. on, on the informal economy. In Mexico, 63% of the people have rely on cash instead of bank accounts. So it's a very large population. Of course, it's a very, you know, people, they're trying, there have been systems trying to set up people with bank accounts to try and track. How much of that, Eduardo, like is by choice and how much of, like, do you have a sense? Is that, are there lots of people that would want that, like to be banked if they could be banked or? I think a lot of people are skeptic of banks. People are very skeptical <laughs> of politicians as well. But uh, it, I think it's just to access, it's, it's just not, I, I think most people would like to get hooked up because that's what they're sold that to get developed or to get better is this is the route to that but i i i just think mexico just relies on an informal for informal economy that is just to that holds the nation you know it's just it, it so i mean kenny can speak to it too it happens in latin america just everywhere i'm not sure about the percentages in other places i think I also read a book a while back that says like two thirds of the world economy happens in the informal economy. So it's a lot of money to be made. And one of the reasons I think a lot of people like in the global South do not, they do cash because of tax evasion, <laughs> you know, because otherwise, you know, their, their income is not gonna go far, you know, and, and it's a way to kind of like bypass the products. I did it, in, not tax evasion. <laughs> I, I, when I was in Nicaragua, I, I could go to, to the, when I was building a house there, I could, I could go to the formal market, you know, like the, like the Home Depot, essentially. Yeah. I could go to the informal market where it was basically uh, one third less, you know, lower cost. So we, we do that out of necessity, I guess, you know, in, in, because it's cheaper than going through like Home Depot. And, and so most of the world works that way. You yeah. know, people survive and a lot of people make a lot of money too. You know, it's, it's also like not, not everyone's struggling, but the, it's just so interesting that they're pushing to bring those people into the formal markets. Because it's an opportunity. And it's massive. it's massive. Like it's not a small thing. I think that would mean tons of money. You know, if you are providing credits or whatever, you know, banking services to people um, who have cell phones, right? Um, and uh, it's it's a huge business opportunity. I think banks. I'm not surprised people in finance are salivating on that idea. And it, obviously, but in order to be part of the banking system and, and 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 use the credit system, which is about trust, right? Who you can trust, you know, your credit score, and you have to know who these people are and be able to track them and get to them, or or punish them if they're not good customers in the system of credit. And so that is the incentive behind, you know, I think connecting everyone in the informal economy to formal uh, finance systems. Especially with phones now. Anyhow. Yeah, no, well, there's, there's quite an interesting um, clip that I found, and I don't even know why this exists online, um, of Roger Molina, who is Frank Molina's son. He's a... Um, Actually, he was in charge of the NASA Berkeley ultraviolet like satellite program for 30 years or something. But his dad, Frank Molina, was out of Jet Propulsion Lab and helped do startup UNESCO. And he's married to Christine Maxwell, Giselaine's Maxwell's sister. And so there's this recorded phone call and they're both at UT Dallas. And so between 
Um, them, they're together in a room um, and his brother, who is actually a global um, financier of water development for like the World Bank or something like that. So they're having a family, like it's a half hour family phone call that's recorded and on Zoom. And I don't even understand how this phone call happened or why it was recorded or why it's like, there's only one other video on this channel. And, and I don't understand, like there's so many things about it, but in it, they're talking about water and they're talking about payment systems. And, and it's mostly about Africa because the brother was working in Africa and he's like, you know, we're having the hardest time getting the water infrastructure there because people aren't used to paying for anything. Right. But he's like, once we got them on phone plans, then they understood the idea of a monthly bill. And so like, then we could get them hooked in because they had the phone and then we could hook them into the water. And then it was quite fascinating because even at that point, they said we would get the wells put in, but the like the women, while they might wash their clothes in the well water, they wanted to drink the pond water because it actually tasted like something like it was their water. They like they didn't want to drink the well water because it didn't taste right, but their water tasted and they were making fun of them as like primitives. Right. And I'm like, no, man, that's not it. Um, but anyway, it was quite, it was an interesting discussion to me for them to, to identify that the phone plan was the hook into all of the other down the line payment systems. They said, you know, other than people either paying for a medical bill or school tuition, like they just didn't normally have bills. And that, that was the, that was the gateway. And then that like, just, I don't want to make it long, but telecommunications, you know, the Carlos Lim out of Mexico, right? He's also like a, he was the richest person out of the world at one point. He has a massive control of Latin America, all of Latin America's telecommunications. Like that's basically Comcast, AT&T, all bundled together. So them and Movistar of Spain, they're the dominant, uh, Antigua, they're like the dominant telecommunications companies. And basically it's very cheap to have phones in, in, in Latin America. It's extremely cheap. Like, you know, you can change numbers randomly. And if you don't, in, in they made it so that, say, if you don't have enough money for the month, or pay as you go, basically. Like, exactly. basically, all the plans are pay as you go. <laughs> so they're definitely hooking a lot of people up to the, you know, to these systems and, and make it so accessible. And so, and obviously, it's in, it, it, now, in retrospect, I'm like, oh, this makes sense. You know, <laughs> yeah. How are you going to build the metaverse if you don't have a phone, you know? Yeah. And now everyone's hooked. Everyone has Facebook. They're more savvy, technologically savvy than I am. You know, they know WhatsApp. They know Instagram. They know how to hack American phones that are locked. And you can you can <laughs> access Apple, the Apple Store, all the applications for free in Latin America. They know how to do that. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Okay, so this is just talking. So this was when I wrote it in January. So they were just talking about like working with um, MasterCard and getting the QR codes and let's see, digital payments with near field communication to transact to get these payments systems with the central banking. So this was just in like last year in 2021. And then if we click forward to the next, I think this might be our last slide. And this basically says how Mexico's central bank plans to move payments to digital. Digital, yeah. So they're they're last year they were planning to get to go digital, and then I think this next one. Oh, 
Sorry, I lied. Here's a map. This is just another map from actually early in the pandemic, there was a hearing about inclusive banking and getting that money out, getting those crumbs out and how they would be distributed. And they were looking at the digital wallet. So this is well before anybody was really talking about central bank digital currency, like in most of the media. But I was making this map. And what I had found was this digital dollar foundation one of the partners was Accenture. And so these global accounting firms are really significant in the metaverse impact investing space, um, KPMG, Deloitte, Accenture, and they've been working on smart card payments and linking them to impact investing for quite some time. So on the map, on the one side, there's a, a woman, Louise James, who was uh, presenting on responsible digital transformation for social impact. And then over here, there's a guy, his name is Gary Glickman. He was working on smart cards, social impact bonds, and pay for success. Um, and I think at one point, Glickman was connected to something called Maximus, which is one of the largest like health and human service uh, technology providers, like doing all sorts of government contracting. So, you know, there is this very direct link between the health and human services um, where the, the bridge in the, the digital payment system is between the impact space and the programmable money space. Okay, so I think we'll end on this one. So this is Indira Kempis, and I guess she was for quite some time um, a big promoter of Bitcoin and like going to all of their conferences and everything. And like, and 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 I think this is, and I'm trying to navigate this myself because I've kind of like on my Twitter, like if you have laser eyeballs or Bitcoin, I generally just remove you immediately because like you're not gonna hear my message, right? I'm just, but I think in the in the next six months, the reality is gonna start to hit that like these other cryptocurrencies, they're not all that. Like they're all meant to be programmable money. That this was all bait and switch. And so like then she swipped, flipped over to to promoting the central bank digital currency legislation. I just want to add one quick note. If you want to add it back to that uh, cell phone and telecommunications in Latin America, there's one interesting thing it was that when you got those pay-as-you-go plans, uh, you basically were paying for the minutes you called, the texts, but Facebook, Instagram, and WhatsApp were free as long as you were connected oh, to those things. And so I always wonder how and why. Now I have a better sense of how and why uh, because, you know, tracking and getting more customers into that. But again, the platforms, the social media platforms were free included with your pay-as-you-go plans in, in Nicaragua and Guatemala for sure. Oh, interesting. I'll hit this now. Here we go. Hi, Bitcoiners. How are you? Well, in Mexico, 67 million people are not included in our financial system. Bitcoin is the answer to solve this problem. Through financial inclusion and financial education, the Mexican people, they have a better quality of life and we can reduce social inequality around the country. Therefore, we have already um, been submitting bills to warranty financial inclusion and financial education as a constitutional right for our population, mm. for our freedom. Yeah. Additionally, in two months, we will propose legislation to modify regulations in fintech and in monetary law. So it's Bitcoin law. 
And we have a message for our president. We're looking forward to sitting down and having coffee with you to talk about this plan. Bitcoin as legal tender in Mexico. Now. constitutional right to financial education. In El Salvador too, the, it was uh, a law that, you know, Bitcoin was also accepted as legal tender. You know, it was uh, sold as a solution, same things, you know, uh, to, uh -huh. yeah. Well, I mean, it's a, it's a recolonization, but it's being framed as, I mean, I don't know. I don't know how people feel about it down there. I mean, up here, the Westerners call imagine that it's liberation. But I mean, the, the other thing that's interesting is if you look up, there's actually a number of um, articles where they talk about Bitcoin as a new kind of organism. Like, is this networked organism that it's like literally its own being? Like, and to me, it feels um, within the context of this emergent global organism that they were have been talking about for so long. It's it's quite interesting, and I will say, you know, I we were at this Mormon Transhumanist Association conference last month uh, in Provo, Utah, and I was really surprised. One of the speakers, his name is Scott Stornetta, and he's a Stanford grad, and he was a, one of the speakers there. And he said he and his partner actually developed the first encrypted distributed ledger before any of the Santoshi Nakamoto stuff. Like he and his partners were working for Bell Labs. And it was it was quite interesting to watch because when he presented, he was one of the last speakers. And he said, you know, I, I didn't know that I was gonna get to talk here, but I'm really um, excited because I do get called on to speak because he's kind of like the underdog of the, the you know, blockchain stuff. But um, I'm so glad to be here because I can talk about the work that I've done in the context of my faith. And so essentially he talked about um, the fact that the trusted third party would be the world, like the world would be a witness to all these transactions. But it was said from sort of a, a spiritual standpoint. He talks about literally coming to this realization in a friendly's restaurant in northern New Jersey, like the world will be a witness. And, you know, I do feel that interests connected to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints are very interconnected to this into state intelligence, um, into the digital identity space, and into the faith-based, quote-unquote, charity space that's going to be on blockchain. And we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit more later. But just in, in closing, I, you know, I'm interested in the next few months as this starts to shake out, like if the people who are really pushing crypto will start to understand what the game actually was. And I don't know. How do you end on that? It, the folks on crypto seem to be very imaginative that this is the future to help and support under-resource communities. I just saw something someone sent me on YouTube where a whole, maybe I'll share it to you privately, Alison, because right now we're going to take too much yeah. time for it, but it's about supporting, you know, people in impoverished states. So I, I don't know. They're very yeah. imaginative about this. Cal, look from my outro. Yeah, and I, would, I just would say 
the, one of the regular themes from talking about identity politics and um, U.S. imperialism or just imperialism in general has been the the notion of you know plucking plucking that that person who represents that oppressed group um, out uh, and how these uh, how Western capitalists or how really any imperialists have done this pluck them out put them in front of people and then have them speak words um, and mm -hmm. use them as mouthpieces for again a, an imperial project a colonial project a, a justification or a, a way of selling uh, people's own imprisonment um, and uh, it just it, it's the same same thing over and over and over again um, and the fact that this the woman's dress was like very colorful. Um, it wasn't like a business suit. It was, hey, I'm one of you, and I'm bringing this this thing that's going to help liberate you to people who have been imprisoned. She's speaking for the people who put them in the prison and saying, here they come to liberate you. Um, and it's, oh boy, I don't know. It's 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 a little, I don't know, defeating to see it over and over again done time and time again. And I really do hope that uh, that that narrative around blockchain being the way out, um, just kind of that we, uh, the people who actually do have looked, been looking into this digital stuff, wake up and say that, that is just not an avenue to go. And this is probably our end. So I don't know if you guys, I yeah. know it's, it wasn't as much conditional cash transfer as we started, but it'll get more specific later. <laughs> I hope it was interesting. I don't know. It was. Oh, it was. It was. <laughs> I took notes actually. So, <laughs> like, it sounds like a scattered conversation, but it's not. You know, like, it takes us to these like rabbit holes for a reason. You know, because like it's not as these issues aren't as simple, and that's why it's hard to understand for some people, right? Like, it's taking me a while, and in like every conversation that I have with you, Allison. I find new implications of, of things that I hadn't noticed. Like, for example, that cell phone thing. In Latin yeah. America, I'm like, now it makes sense. I, at the time, I was like, why is it free to access so much data on Facebook, WhatsApp, Instagram? Oh, they're data collecting. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, like, you know, people in, 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 and so again, you know, I just enjoy conversations. Um, in, you know, there's a lot to think about. And, and again, it doesn't sound like a, a linear conversation but it all relates in my brain at least and Thank i hope you. it relates to people <laughs> and because like we do have to connect dots we always i think bring this up uh in order to understand what their intentions are guess to see what their intentions are you know and, and maybe find solutions i guess but or or ways to get together or resist that individually but hopefully collectively collectively because we've talked about that we can't it's exhausting to do this by yourself or you know by ourselves and so yeah i mean thank you for sharing again uh and and it, it was helpful to me and I appreciate good, good. and what so where does this set us up for next week allison what do you think okay so um so the second half, so the first half is essentially sort of framing the control mechanism and like the cybernetic control mechanism of the global brain and controlling one's money and, and how those transactions will be managed and reflected into the global brain. And then, so the second half will be a little bit more nuts and bolts about conditional cash transfer, but I think I start off, I wanted to 
um, touch a little bit more directly on the Fabian socialism stuff and the eugenics movement, because we got a little bit ahead of ourselves in the conversation. But I do think that it is that intersection of sort of um, upper class paternalism, uh, masquerading as collective care, sort of, you know, like settlement houses that's being woven into the impact space with the telecommunications. Um, so that's, you know, again, Mexico being a test bed in specifically looking at it, I think from like an indigenous standpoint, a standpoint of like sort of this sacred cultural practice and the corn culture and like it all goes together. So I think being the next door neighbor to the US, like it was very convenient for them just to scoop down and say, here, let us manage your poverty for you. We'll give you some good experts to do it. And then we'll, we'll use you as our test bed. So again, yeah, next time we'll be a little bit more specifics, but thank you for hanging with me um, for the context. It, it eventually it all sink in. It's like an immersion, a random immersion class. <laughs> I'm not trained as a teacher, y'all. You, you, you guys know better than me. I'm, um, I think I'm just picking it up as I go along. can pick out what is most meaningful then, but nevertheless, they're gonna, there's a lot of details that are gonna kind of resonate for me, particularly that some of those things from the book. Um, yeah. Uh, about how to, how the world the world today can be seen in that in the book that was written in the, in the 30s. Yeah. All right. Well, that does it for this week's episode. I'm not sure if this is the longest episode running of all of our episodes, but this one <laughs> we'll have part two of uh, part two of uh, on next week. <clears throat> so that does it for this week's episode. What's left is a weekly political podcast that's channel challenging the mainstream left with post information about our topics and our guests uh, on the episode notes where we found this episode or on our blog at what-s-left.webnote.com. Uh, you can find past episodes to this podcast slash channel there and connect with us. I remind folks, if you like anything you've heard here, please check out our, our blog. Please subscribe, rate, review, turn on your notifications to any of our platforms on Spotify, iTunes, Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, BitChute, YouTube, Rumble, or Telegram. And uh, you can find any of that on the episode notes. Now, if you'd like to give it, give us feedback about something you've heard or suggest something for us to cover, contact us through our blog. I'm Eduardo Barco, uh, Jessica, Kenny Cepeda, and Andy Lipson. Thank you very much, Alison, for joining us. We'll see you all next time. Welcome back. I'm so glad to see you. Yes. <laughs>